Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Quip, Squarespace, Simply Safe, Miller High Life, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Hi, I'm Richard Haddam, and I'm the reason some of you don't listen to the show anymore. In February of 2017, I was riding along in my car, minding my own business, listening to a podcast series about the Mothman prophecies, a book by John Keel, which I adapted into the screenplay that became the movie of the same name in 2002. I nearly ran off the road when I heard the hosts of the show, Scott and Forrest, name-check me on the air. Just a few months later, in May, I was a guest on Astonishing Legends for the first time. I've been back several times since then, so many that I've lost count. Seven. It's been seven times. I know, it feels like more than that to me, too. Anyway, tonight I'm back, but this time, this time the tables have turned. I'm the host, and I'll be asking the questions. Tonight, I'm sitting down with Forrest and Scott to find out about not only the show and how it came to be, but about how they've changed along the way and where they hope it will go from here. And that's not all, though. Many of you sent in your own questions on Facebook and Twitter, so Scott and Forrest will be answering those, too. We recorded this a few weeks ago, and as you might expect, it went long, so naturally it's a two-parter. Oh, so actually this will be the eighth and ninth time I've been on the show. The vanity of it all disgusts me too, but look, if they can get three parts out of the Black Monk of Pontefract, I can get two parts out of them. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Richard Haddam, and this is Forrest Burgess. I am not now, nor have I ever been, comfortable with the format of, or my comments on, tonight's show. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on just who Scott and Forrest think they are anyway. back sort of i don't really feel back we're back we're back it's weird anytime we take a break it's like we so rarely get them and i i don't mean to sound like i'm whining i'm actually trying to give some perspective here <laughs> oh i'm whining I, I'm you're whining, whining. you're whining yeah. my yeah. thing is like i don't know what to do with the break i'm like oh yeah here's a day or two <laughs> where i could do absolutely nothing and then i'm just like on the couch twiddling my thumbs and then suddenly i start thinking about what was our next topic <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm trying yeah. to figure out, oh. or like when I go to bed at night and I'm like trying to, you know, I'll wake up honestly in the middle of the night and be like, oh, I forgot to email Micah Hanks or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, No, I'm right there with you, except I'm not really thinking about the next topic. I'm trying not to, but there are so many back elements aside from just doing the recording and research and recording and therefore recording and on the web page and all the elements that go into the show. There's a lot of little business things, administrative things that we have to take care of. So it just goes on and on, even if you're on a break. Yeah, it does. It does. It's it's relentless. You know, well, and people we'll are talk about find that out tonight. You're going to hear all about that. Yeah. People are going to find out more about uh, all the mundane things, which will bore them to tears about all the little things that go into the making of at least this podcast that don't end up in the main feed. Yeah, all that kind of information is coming at you tonight, like Cleopatra. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. But uh, first things first, I do want to. Wait a second. Hold on. Yeah. What, what was that reference? That's from Cleopatra's theme by the band Cleopatra. 
But just forget. <laughs> oh, yeah. It. Anyway. Yeah. I, no, I, no, it's vaguely, vaguely look familiar. It up, but that kids. was, uh, uh, was that 2000? When was 98, that? 98. Oh, boy. 1998. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Here's the first thing I was tr- been trying to get to. We're already burying the lead. We are not smoking in tonight's show. There is smoking <laughs> in the title. There was some concern about us promoting smoking. We're not smoking. I voted against it because of uh, everything that's going on. Everything is getting canceled. Cancel. We're going to get canceled because (laughs) all we do is love to smoke and talk about smoking. In a few minutes, you're going (laughs) to find out why the show is called that. Don't worry about it. Um, We are back. I do want to say we hope you enjoyed the stuff we released during our dark weeks, including which I I think we flummoxed some people with the sound of the ocean waves crashing for almost three hours. I did. I put that out and I I thought we mentioned it everywhere. It's just kind of for going to sleep or meditating or whatever. I recorded it last February, but there were still a few people that were like, what the on Twitter. <laughs> well, you know, I, I could talk over it if you want. I can I ramble for three hours about uh, two questions, as you'll see in tonight's show. I can just go on and on. Also, I am actually looking forward to our R.J. Reynolds uh, sponsorship here. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's coming. Cigarettes for children. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I don't think that's my other magical thinking was like, wouldn't it be awfully weird and just awful if the only thing that cured COVID-19 was smoking, they found out. Yeah, that would I'm weird. sorry, folks. I know we told you you shouldn't do that, but it is the one thing that cures <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> uh, so that's up to you. You're going to have to decide uh, which is worse. Um, the, sorry, no, forget all that. I was joking, of course. I was joking, of course. And also, we released uh, just a few days ago or last week, we released the... Uh, the Hellfire Club uh, bonus stuff we did, that we yeah. had that we had recorded for Loftus Hall, but the show was already kind of long. So we we wound up, uh, we posted that on Patreon back in April of last year for our patrons, but we thought it'd be uh, something fun to put out in the main feed uh, to keep you guys entertained while we were off these past couple of weeks. Well, you know, you can try to cut out all my tangents and ramblings <laughs> out of the show. I, I know you, you and Sarah do your best, but sooner or later... They are going to hit the main feed, so just give into it. Just man. give it. Just let it happen. <laughs> well, it's like it's like the it's like the cutting room floor drags. It's like, wow, it's been a long time since we put anything out. We do have this flotsam and jetsam here. This stuff, yeah, going on and on. But I will say something about that. Uh, that's a whole separate topic that people have been requesting us to cover for a long time now. Yeah, and one that personally fascinated me. It would have really uh, blow to the show, and it really wasn't a part three kind of thing, but it's definitely connected. And I was really actually excited. I think I did mention in our discussion where I found a connection yes, between Loftus Hall, a direct connection by means of a painting that was done. Yeah. It's like, oh my goodness, there you go. Because that was often rumored. Was there any connection to this notorious club of ne'er-do-wells and scamps to the illustrious Loftus Hall? And apparently there was. Yeah, you really dug up some great stuff there. I was I was looking forward to posting it. And I can't wait to get across the pond for a guided tour of both Loftus Hall and what's left of the Dublin Hellfire Club from our good friend and best-selling Irish horror author, Chris Rush, who wrote yeah. The Legend of Loftus Hall. You guys may remember us uh, having him on the show. He also wrote Folklore, The Darker Side of Ireland, and another book called 13 Dead. And he's, he's got a few other ones out there. You can find, if you look up Chris Rush, you can find him on Amazon pretty easily. Super nice guy and a really intriguing and engaging writer, too. If you if you love uh, spooky writing with a historical bent that really evokes a certain mood, definitely check those titles out. And, oh, yes, we're going to get our good Irish friend Tony to tag along, too, just to keep us on our toes and add a little danger and mystery to the trip. But, you know, honestly, after travel restrictions ease up, Getting a tour from Chris and Tony, I think just sounds like a real blast. And isn't Chris friends with the current owners of Loftus Hall as well? Yes, he is. 
That means we get the keys to the kingdom, I think. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You really can't beat that. It's an international ghost hunting adventure, which would be my first abroad and your first ever ghost hunting experience, unless I can drag you to one before that. Hey, look, I've already been on a ghost (laughs) hunt at the Kent stage for their paranormal Uh, weekend, and uh, let's not forget the Sally House. A couple of things here. First, Kent was a ghost walk. So that's that's like ghost hunting light. Meant to be more fun uh, rather than investigative, but that was still a ton of fun. And that was our first experience ever, I believe, you and I together in a haunted location. Yeah, it was. And actually uh, saw some people get some evidence. So that was pretty intriguing. Uh, secondly, the Sally House. Well, that was more like ghosts hunting us. Yeah, point taken. We also want to give a shout out to Mark Sullivan, whose four times granduncle was none other than Father Brodus, who banished the devil from Loftus Hall. That is so cool. Thanks for commenting on our webpage, Mark. I, I also wanted to take a quick second to hand out a heartfelt thanks to our listeners who follow us on social media and who have been, especially recently, so supportive of us. It really means a lot to us, and it keeps us going, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Well, I guess we can, because I'm, I'm telling you now. We, we appreciate <laughs> I guess it. we are, but, <laughs> but, but seriously, we sincerely do. And what that has always told me is that those who've listened to us on the show for a while now and have come to know how we view things about the world, they are the ones who really know us as people, just like any good friend. And it's you folks who really matter to us the most. All right, well, I guess we should uh, probably give the show back over to Rich. Okay, but before we do, I just want to say, again, I'm still not convinced that this was a great idea. I got to admit, I'm a little nervous in hindsight about opening up that much because I'm a pretty private person, as as, uh, I think some listeners have even commented on. So uh, I was taking a little bit of a risk just talking about myself that much uh, personally, but uh, let's do it and just see what happens. Everyone, please welcome Rich Haddam back to Astonishing Legends. We're having him here to uh, run away with the show and make his own choices, but we're also (laughs) going to tell him what to do. Go ahead, Rich. Always a bad idea. (laughs) Well, you know, you guys interviewed me all those many years ago, back Mm. in the late 50s, was it? Yes. When I first appeared on the show? (laughs) Yeah. Before the invention of television. Yes. Right. So it it seemed to make sense that... uh, in an episode where we're going to find out about you, uh, I could ask the questions. And I've got some questions. And the listeners have questions. So uh, you guys are in the hot seat now. I'm so mm. nervous. <laughs> it is a little warm. I, we have to turn off the air conditioning to uh, so it doesn't end up on the recording. So it is getting a little warmer in here. Oh, happy. yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow, this is super dynamic so far. Where are we going to start? <laughs> I thought maybe you had an intro or you had to do something. Uh, we'll or, do that uh, stuff later. We can yeah. just go into the questions. Yeah, right? well, we could. Or we could talk a little bit about how many, do you know how many times you've been on the show? I don't even know yet. Six or seven times? Yeah. So you're like our Alec Baldwin hosting SNL. You're like right. the guest host with the most, or, or guest who's been on the most number of times. <laughs> or like well, you Howard. me back. Yeah. That's, and again, that's, <laughs> that's your decision. So yeah. you invite me here. I, you know, I just sort of hover around outside your house waiting to be invited in. <laughs> the reason this came about, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that we have a two-parter coming up that was kind of intense, uh, and we wanted to do something that was a little bit of a lighter lift, but also we've been trying to open up a little bit more on the show, I think. People seem to have been interested in that, and we thought, well, maybe we can take a chance to have some questions submitted and answer some questions and talk a little bit about stuff that we don't normally talk about on the show, because we're always sort of 
buttoned up when it comes to the topic and we're we've gun shied away a little bit from all the tangents we used to go on we still go on little tangents but man we used to really go out way off the sidetrack into the tunnel and then the train never came out the other side so not, not that bad <laughs> <laughs> but i always consider that the best part of the show well it's yeah. fun but we have dialed it back a little bit just because of some vitriolic comments on itunes but i think uh We've gotten now, the beauty is being as old as the show is now, I've gotten to where I don't care at all about the negative comments anywhere, anymore. Well, it's yeah, a nice feeling. Not only that, but <laughs> yeah, it, it's like the fans are still listening. The ones who, I guess, had complaints have moved on to something else. And uh, now it's uh, just uh, just us friends. Yeah. No, weirdly, I would say most of them are still listening and still complaining every once in a while. Yeah. It's like we have some diehard, um, and we love them, but there are diehard gadflies who will pop in now and again and have uh, similar complaints or they love this or that about it. And uh, of course, your first thought is you wonder, well, why are you still listening? Hey, look, as long as they're still subscribing to Great Courses Plus. <laughs> <laughs> as long as that's keeping the lights on. Well, they have to they have to keep buying other products as well as, as they come up. And yeah, well, uh, we, we, yeah. we got two blanket Fortianas to keep uh, lit and and heated. That's right. <laughs> and air conditioned. Yeah. Hopefully they all brush their teeth with that weird little toothbrush you guys are so crazy about. <laughs> <laughs> the quip. Well, they, they keep the show going and the lights on and blanket Fortiana. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, shall I dive into my questions? Because I've got questions and then I know listeners have questions. I suppose. Shall I just uh, start in on my interrogation? Yeah, I yeah, think free Why not? Yeah. That always works. Again, I wish I had a cigarette right now. <laughs> <laughs> now we have to just put a uh, a superimposed title. Uh, like Rich and Scott and I were discussing that I've been watching all of the Twilight Zone episodes in order. And of course, the trigger warning at the upper left is fear and smoking. So when you watch <laughs> Twilight Zone, those are the two things that may put you into a tizzy. That, that there will be fear on the show and smoking. Well, that's the thing. We were talking about one of the special features in the DVDs of the uh, Twilight Zone where it's Mike Wallace interviewing Rod Serling in a studio in you know late 50s, early 60s. And it's just you know the black background and the two of them are smoking and it looks like they're standing on a street corner in London. <laughs> you can barely see them. You forget that's what it was like, but uh, I guess we can't do it that way. We can't, there's no visual, just picture us all sitting here in a smoke filled room with right. half filled glasses of scotch, and uh, it's 1 a.m., and, uh, and we're really getting down to it now. All right, here we go. Yeah, I met you guys three years ago. It turns out we, Forrest and I, almost crossed paths years ago at USC, but. We did not know each other until three years ago. No, that's much weirder than how I met Scott, of course. That story was very strange in that we knew a lot of the same people, but I don't remember bumping into you at all. Meeting Scott was a much more natural progression through work. Uh, yeah. I see. My question actually is, before there was a podcast, did you guys just hang out in diners for hours on end <laughs> talking about... You know, the Jersey Devil or UFO cases. I mean, is that, were you just like, why are we just talking to each other? People love this stuff. I mean, <laughs> what, like what led to the idea and whose idea was it? Who approached the other one and said, look, sit down. I got a crazy idea. We get asked this a lot. I, if Scott doesn't mind, I'll, uh, I'll put in my two cents first. And then yeah, go ahead. Can go because it's all about recollection and as years pass, and it's all, this whole journey for us is not only an examination of all the weird stuff that, as I like to say, 
is not supposed to happen in the world, but it seems to. And within that is an examination of our own ideas and beliefs and and how that's grown and, and evolved and expanded and changed over the years. And a lot of that, though, is is looking back to how you used to view stuff. And so our meat story, it's a little hazy because it wasn't that, like I said, it's much more organic. It was not that dramatic. It was unceremonious. Yeah. So you, you don't really mark a time. It's like, you know, Scott and I, I walked around the corner and, uh, you know, your chocolate gets into his weirdly <laughs> jar of peanut butter <laughs> he happens to be eating. If you remember that old Reese's commercial is like, the guy's eating peanut butter out of a jar with a spoon. I guess you can do that on the street. I, I don't know. But when we first met, I, it was through work friends. So we both have backgrounds in post-production. So uh, as a lot of people know now, I I went to USC film school like you, Rich. And again, we had a lot of the same friends. We we have the same Venn diagram, but our circles did not intersect really. I don't, I just don't recall meeting you, but but it was a close friend of mine uh, throughout school and and also John Eberhardt, who we did a series on, we'll probably be talking about uh, in one of the questions coming up here. We were all this group of friends at USC in film school, and and Rich was a a, a part of that, but it, it, the, more of the writers. So I was I took critical studies, which is a critical analysis and history of film and film critique and and all that good stuff, which is an area I didn't know much about. So I was glad to get a, an exposure to that. Rich was off writing uh, and drafting screenplays, and we never met up. But with Scott, it's like, I guess, so my point is like, after that, I went into editing film trailers. And Scott had very, we had very similar work beginnings. We both worked in a tape vault at post-production places. The place that I worked at, you know, I managed that a little bit. I learned how to edit video. That was a place that cut trailers, coming attractions for Disney films, mostly live action. When is this? So I, I I left school about 88, 89. I don't even remember exactly. So right after that. You were asked to leave. Well, <laughs> let me put it this way. I, I never passed the math proficiency test. I took it like four times. And said, uh, you know what? That's enough. It's the universe saying like, don't zero bother with it. Point zero. <laughs> so I, I, not that bad, but I, I did go through the ceremony. I got the uh, all the uh, the fixins, except I didn't actually get the sheepskin, as they call it. So later on, what happened is that uh, five or six years later, there were so many seniors at USC that never passed officially. So they said, just forget it. Here's your diploma. Just go away. You're clogging our system. So yeah, so the official graduation is probably uh, five wait, or six wait, years Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. First, I haven't heard this story. And there's a couple things I want to okay. point out real quick. The, oh, boy. Okay. All right. The first thing is... <laughs> okay, now, now Scott's going to be inter- interviewing Forrest. No, no, no. And- yeah. Well, <laughs> like, who's, who's interviewing who here? Forrest is a couple years older than me, so that he got out of college before I did. So right, that right. work that you did started a few years ahead of me. Yes. But also... Are you just saying that you didn't really graduate and then they agreed to give you your degree later because you were an annoyance? It wasn't just me. <laughs> from the, what is happening? Yes, from the, I think the notification that they, <laughs> the letter they sent out. Because here's the deal. At, at USC, they have a language proficiency uh, requirement. Back then they did. So this would be, yeah, 88. 89. Just to hang on a second, I've got to record this for our HR department because I don't think this was reflected <laughs> on your application. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we are recording the story. It. It's all official here. Yeah. English yeah. was not your first language, so <laughs> this is really a success story. Uh, we're going to be getting to those types of questions later <laughs> in this current climate. Yes. So 
yes. caution what you say or you'll be quote unquote dragged <laughs> uh, on social media. It's not me. I don't, I don't do it. Apparently that's just what's happening uh, out there. So I, I stay off the boards. They're dragging. I know. I, I, I can't even keep up with these terms. It, seriously, it's, it's, I'm constantly going to the Urban Dictionary. But the story is that there were so many of us. Well, okay. So there's also a language proficiency bar that you had to pass, which I did. So I took Spanish and, uh, and, and did, you know, well enough. I got by that and math I hadn't really taken since high school. So I went through, you know, three, a bunch of years of college and, uh, it's like, <laughs> Oh, you should math, remember everything. You can see your math problem right there. A, three, yeah, a, bunch, of a bunch of years college. Yeah. Well, I, okay. <laughs> Nobody, again, you're, we're, we're going far afield here. I'd, I'd gone to the university of Washington for a couple of years, got all my undergraduate degrees, uh, requirements out of the way, then transferred right. to USC. Right. So I, I had the language down, uh, already, but I'd not taken any math. And it's like, Oh wait, you have to know high school algebra and all this other stuff to pass the math proficiency exam. And it's like, okay, I can do that. I remember enough. And then I would get like within one or two points of passing this stupid test a couple of times. You're talking yeah. about the one where you would you would sit there and then once a week you'd have to go to the lab and get on the computer and, and complete a 10 question test, right? That's the uh, the tutelage for passing the exam. They don't care what you did. If you could if you were just a genius, could sit down, do it off the top of your head and pass it, that's it. It's just a one-time test. My senior year, my second semester, like my last semester of school, I had not completed algebra. So right. high school algebra. So I, I had to sit there in freshman algebra in senior year. And literally, they're just taking you through step by step. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, okay, I vaguely remember this. And then once a week, you'd go to this lab where you'd get on a computer, answer 10 questions. You had to get at least eight of them right. And if yeah. you did it, you completed that week's work. And then at the end of the whole thing, they had a final thing where it was like 50 questions. Was that what you had to do? You did it the long way. You did it the right, the right way, the hard way. I decided to like, let me just get to the 50 questions. Let me see if I can pass that. Oh, okay, so okay. if you could do it, that's fine. You know, if you could study on your own and uh, bought several of those books, I never cracked those, those help books. And so the idea here to make a long story even longer, you know, I got really close a bunch of times, like I'm almost there. I can do this just a little, you know, but I was doing it on my own. And, and so finally, after like the fourth or fifth time, I think the last time I missed it by one question. It's like, okay, that's it. The hell with this. I don't need your, your darn sheepskin diploma hanging on my wall. And also the film industry, it's, we've talked about this before that uh, I think people were, we're glad that I mentioned this because they're going through film school themselves. And it's like, it's not like a regular degree. It's like, you get out, it's like, well, what are you going to do now? Smart guy. It's like, you don't go to like the film company and start making films as a senior vice president. It's all whatever you do with it. And there's not a job. You've never had a job. I've never had a job where they have even asked if you've completed oh. college, much less where you went to college or how yeah. you did in college. They don't no. give a And then there's no. <laughs> people like me who still roll my eyes when somebody says they've got a degree in cinema from USC. Well, Scott, what did you get your degree in? Uh, I, I have a, ba Animal a, B husbandry. a bachelor of arts degree in communications. Even worse. Yeah, oh, I studied with, a, you know, with an emphasis on radio, television, and film. So Could you be less specific? Yeah. Communications. Isn't that like the Diet Coke version of film school? Yeah, it probably is. No, I, I took out a ton of student loans. My parents paid for part of it, and I, I worked my butt off 
Yeah. And that I believe. And still had years of loans after that. Uh, but what I, it was expensive then. But I, what I will say, it's astronomical now. I don't even know how kids are doing it. I mean. But thanks to the uh, Patreon, you'll have those paid off soon. <laughs> no, you know what? I, my plan is to uh, encounter the missing 411 phenomenon and uh, just bail and just vanish. Yeah. But when I'm infirm and still owing a lot of debt on everything. So Scott and I have a plan when that happens to take care of all of my unfinished business and also make it a, a, an awesome six-part series. <laughs> yeah. we, coming back around to your original yeah. question, though, Rich, we we hung out off and on, but I wouldn't say we necessarily really sought each other out. We would just uh, coincide at get-togethers with a larger circle of friends. And I do have the distinct memory of sitting down and talking about the kinds of things we're talking about at a bar while like 10 of our other friends are there, you know, from time to time, just uh, kind of yeah. rambling on about whatever, a dead water or the Mary Celeste or something occasionally, but it wasn't like what the show became, but it was enough of a thing that when it came time to do the show, we were both like, yeah, we should do this. Cause I can't honestly say that it was any person's idea. I can't say that it was Forrest's idea or my idea. I honestly can't remember. But what I do know is that we were both like, yeah, that seems like a good idea for the two of us. It was a really soft opening, you could say. So, I mean, that's the thing is that after college, and by the way, yes, they just uh, eventually USC, there was like 3,500 students that had never passed the math thing. And we were just clogging the works. They said, just take it and go. Nice. Go do whatever the heck you're going to do. Okay. So I, I won. I waited them out and I beat <laughs> USC. I beat the system. I beat the man. So, uh, but the point is, is that Scott and I both had knowledge of video and a little bit of audio post-production. So we're familiar with media and I, I'd grown up around it all my life. My dad, uh, you know, he had his uh, own little advertising concern and it was always uh, shooting film and, and shooting uh, still photography. So I, I grew up knowing that. And I think Scott's right. It was probably at a gathering of some mutual friends and we all worked in the post-production business around in LA and we were part of that. Uh, our Venn diagram circles finally met. And here's the thing though, Rich, is that when you sit down in a group of people the conversation hits a lull and you say, hey, has anybody ever heard of Black Eyed Kids? And then the, you hear the record scratch. It's like, what the hell? No. <laughs> uh, shut up. Yeah, You're stop. making us uncomfortable. That's exactly the point. You make a lot of people uncomfortable with this. And even within our circle of friends, they're not all that interested. to that, right? That's what I'm saying is that you don't bring those things up. And so when you meet somebody... And I can't remember what topic we first started discussing. It's just like, I don't know how it came up, but it could have been something like, like dead water or the pyramids or, or just stuff like that. It's like, Hey, here's finally somebody who seems kind of cool. And he likes talking about this stuff. And he's, we both aren't experts on anything, but we have this quest for knowledge of finding out more. So that leads first to the discussion. And, and like I said, finding a like mind where you bring something up and people don't roll their eyes. And look, I'm these are our closest friends. And that's what happens. They roll their eyes or it's just like, hey, anybody here believe in ghosts? It's like, shut up. You know, like, shut up, you idiot. Nobody wants to talk about this. Hi, I'm Sari Nichols, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrick and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. But there's another aspect to this because this was a life-changing decision. This was a full-time gig. And I know there were probably a few months there where you had other gigs going on and you sort of did this on the side just to see. But here's the thing. 
when you decide to do a podcast, you're kind of saying we're setting sail into open water. What was going on in both of your lives that made you feel like now was an acceptable time? Like you could afford either monetarily or just in terms of your own psychic energy. It's like, we're going to try this new thing. Well, I'll start with that. For me, the timing motivation was I had been cutting TV commercials or not not editing commercials for that long, but I'd been on that side of the business for almost 17 years. Of course, I spent the first five or six moving up from a tape runner, a person who delivered film and all that stuff all the way up. And so I was probably maybe 10 or 11 years as an editor of TV commercials and music videos. And then when my son was born, I stopped and became a stay-at-home dad, which I think you can relate to because I feel like you're talking to your yeah. son right now. <laughs> so uh, like, <laughs> talking to Susan, but it's like, oh, okay. That was, okay. So, but, but no, but that was my point is just like my wife and I were both working and I, at the time, I'll try to make it brief, but essentially we had just moved from Los Angeles. Our, we yo-yoed across the country. We met in college in North Carolina. We moved to LA for nine years where she worked in television and I worked doing the commercials. Then she got hired to write for Saturday Night Live, which was her lifelong dream. So we moved to New York for her to do that. And then we were in New York for nine years. And right towards the end of that, our son was born. So we were about to come back to North Carolina at that point, but then Emily, my wife, got invited to come write for Parks and Recreation. And she and Amy Poehler had worked together for a long time at Saturday Night Live. So she was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm ready to go settle down. Let's go back. So we went back to L.A. And at this point, our son was about 11 months old. And I had been gone from Los Angeles for nine years. So my business relied on clients that had all forgotten about me. So I was trying to get back to work. And I was freelancing a little bit. And I had I was making some work. But the also the business was collapsing financially because technology was getting so much cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You used to have to pay $150,000 for edit system. And now they were like $3,000 and a laptop. So rates were going down and all that. So I was making an okay living, but not as good as before. And we had hired a nanny and everything I was making was going to the nanny. And so then I had talked to my wife and I said, why don't I just stay home with our son and you can keep working. <laughs> Does this sound like a good idea? <laughs> she, but, and, and that's what happened. She was like, no, I'd prefer that anyway. I mean, we had a great care for him for the first couple of years, but then I decided to take over. So I did that. And then when he got old enough to start going to school, while we were living in LA for the second time, I knew I needed to go back to work. And that's right about when we started the show. And I did not right, want to, because I didn't want to go back. Yeah. You were like, you weren't loving that gig so no, much. Right. You were... I it was good to me, but I was done with it. Yeah. And, and you're at that age, you know, where you were kind of like, oh, well, what do I really want to do? Yeah. Is this going to be the rest of my life? Yes, I'm guessing exactly. That, that had to be part of it for both of you, right? Well, Scott, let me ask you this before you continue. Yeah. It, would you have considered video editor or, you know, commercial editor a career? And I mean, in the very heavy word, sense of the word, this is your career. You are a video editor. Would I have considered that at what stage in my life? Well, did you consider what you were doing? Because Forrest has a gig for you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of going back, actually. It was as stressful as it all was. It's, uh, it was manageable. Uh, while you were doing it, and in general, did you consider that a career that you were yes. doing? Like, this is my career. I enjoyed it while I was doing it. But the other thing that happened, in addition to sort of the technology changing and the, and the barrier to entry in terms of costs, also budgets were falling for advertising agencies and music videos. So the amount of income that I could make from it was descending. And then also the excitement right. of it was as well. So the guys that I started out working for 
were kind of big deal guys in Hollywood. They worked yeah. with Michael Bay and David Fincher all before they were big time feature film guys. So we're doing like all this really cool stuff. And then as I moved up and climbed up the ladder and became more prominent as an editor, the work got worse and worse. The budgets got worse and the rates went down. But I made all that work for a good time and I made a decent income for a, a long time. And, uh, you know, initially I was the only one working while my wife was working on her master's degree at, at Loyola Marymount in LA. And I was bringing home the bacon on that side. So I did enjoy it. It was exciting. I got to work on creative projects a lot, but then the further I went, the projects got less and less creative. They had less and less money to pay. And so when I stopped to be a stay at home dad, which I really, really enjoyed, I mean, it's hard work, but I, I did enjoy it. When it did come time to go back to your point, Rich, I was like, I can't go back to that. And in a way, that's kind of reckless because I threw out 15 years of, of experience or more to go into the podcast thing. But the other thing was when Forrest and I started talking about the podcast thing, the upside of having done that for so long was that from a technology standpoint and understanding it, there was absolutely no concern. I wasn't worried about microphones and computers and editing and posting. I was like, we'll get to that quick because video editing is a lot harder than that. But or film editing. So that was that side of it. But yes, Forrest, when I was doing it, I didn't envision that I wanted to not do it indefinitely. But as the business changed, it became a less attractive lifelong career to me, even though I really do like editing and I like editing creative work. And I did right before we started the show, I explored branching off because I have friends who have done this, branching off into more creative work. One editor who I'm a huge fan of, Stacey Schroeder, she's a comedy editor, she really has made her name, and she cut Eastbound and Down. She's done a bunch of movies, if you look her up, just really amazing. And I remember working with her in commercials, and then, like, the next thing I looked up, and she's over here winning awards and doing this really great comedy. I was like, how did she get over there? She's, like, way in the other room, and I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. like, wait, I'll be back. I've got to go do this, you know, kitchen wipe commercial. So <laughs> there's that part of it that's hard. The thing was that the, overall, though, the work was fun. It was technically fun, and creatively, it was kind of fun, and I met a lot of fun people that I'm still friends with to this day. But there were other people that I didn't want to ever work with again. So, all right, like, <laughs> like a lot I chose of jobs. Forrest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I ran. Question two. We got a ways to go. We got a ways to go. One thing I've always wanted to know: which one of you is Scott? You can't tell right now either. <laughs> I shaved my beard. One way or another, someone approaches someone. Let's do a show about these sort of topics. Was the original conception of the show, was it different than what the show is right now? Well, there, there were some ideas about what it would be, and I, I have some very profound and, and uh, uh, poignant thoughts about it. Uh, I mean, to go back to the beginning, and I, I want to do, uh, I do want to address this point because we get asked this question a lot by people trying to start their own podcasts. And, you know, to tail off of the, uh, the last question, it's like, I was already working freelance or, or fairly steadily freelance, which we call permalancing, where you'll work two, three months on a, on a single project, and then you're done for three or four weeks, and you you blew through all the money you spent or you made on the previous gig. So that was not going anywhere. But I, it was keeping me, uh, my bills paid, and and keeping me in, in food and shelter. So I was doing it, but it's like, how many more years do I want to keep doing this at this level? Because I never leaned into it, as they say, as uh, Sheryl Sandberg uh, so cleverly put. And, inspiring as it is, I never leaned into it. So it's like, this is not a career for me. I mean, I, I work with some great people and seriously, in, in my case, the people were some of the best aspect of doing that job. Uh, not so much the, the corporate uh, projects I was doing, 
Uh, and it's also the worst part about doing the podcast, he said earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's what's <laughs> ironic about it, because you're locked in with one person, Ouch. whereas where you're permalancing, uh, that, that your, your crew changes a little bit. But I need to get out of that. So uh, to address this point, it's like, well, Scott and I first started this, and it's like, you know, this will just be fun. I mean, this is stuff we want to talk about. We both, you know, have a creative bent and want to produce, and Scott, much more, you know, an entrepreneurial type, although I also like the idea of starting something that's, that's your own, it's your own business. And we didn't know if this could take off, but we were going to apply every professional talent we had and motivation to do that. So when people say like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and start a podcast, what's your best advice? I say, first start off, you have to figure out what you want it to be. And I've said this a lot, but and people will say, well, what do you mean by that? It's like, well, what do you want this to end up as? Do you want this to be a hobby? Uh, something you, you turn out a couple of episodes every, you know, every month or, you know, six or seven a year. That's fine. It could be whatever you want it to be. And that's one of the exciting things about podcasting is that there are no rules. We're not bound by anything like we used to be, like Scott and I were uh, independently with regular media. You can make it whatever you want, but you have to decide and that can change. That can evolve as as you go along, which is what it did for us. Because, like I said, we weren't sure what it could be, but we were going to try as hard as we could, take the best avenues and the best practices we could, and plow ahead with that. So it was a little easier in Scott's view. Yes, he's married, so uh, he has support from his wife. And, yeah, I didn't get to that. He point. was able to work. I didn't get to really say yeah. that, but like it, we didn't make money for the first sixteen months. We made absolutely right. nothing, and had my wife not been supportive uh, on my end anyway, in my household, we wouldn't have even gotten that far. So because it was such yeah. an all-consuming job. So, yeah. But so, now, I mean, at this point, it's a fire hose of cash aimed right at <laughs> That's right. That's why I'm talking to you from inside my safe. Right. <laughs> but it all goes into our wardrobe selections. Yeah. We have so much overhead on on frivolous stuff now. But when we started off, we we had no idea if we could make money because, and again, this is when, if you can believe it, podcasting was even less respected than it is now. It's turned into Once being, you guys started, I think. No, I, I think it, uh, no, we, we didn't even, <laughs> it's not even something we said we did because it's like, oh, you have a little radio show in your basement. Well, that's cute. That's, oh, good for you. That's cool. You guys can, you nerds can like uh, huddle up and talk about uh, nerdy stuff. But I was able to work on it in the evenings. And I think we recorded on our weekends and we don't even know how we were able to do it, especially for some of those big shows. Like uh, uh, I was still working when we did uh, Oak Island. Yeah, that, that, was, was, a, that was one of our first major shows. And and we got by, We you'll do it somehow. But it's really exhausting. But we we kept at it because it's like, I, I think there's something to this. I mean, a lot of people have said like, oh, so you have a really expensive hobby you're never going to make money at. It's like, well, some people are doing it. There are ways to do it. And we're going we're gonna to plow ahead and keep at it. And uh, my hat's off to Scott because he was uh, the engineer with a little train camp and, and getting this train keep a rolling. And you know, and I did as much creatively as I could and we, we stuck with it. So for people, what do you want it to be? And people who say like, well, I want to make money at it. It's like, well, then that's a whole different story is that you're really going to have to try hard. It's going to be exhausting. And as we always say, the, the really hard thing to do is get a podcast going. It's so much harder to keep it going. Yeah. But that's if you want it to be a money-making job, it can happen. There's a lot of luck involved, but it's probably 80, 90% hard work and just keeping at it and doing all those things uh, to gain the biggest share of audience. This question comes from my experience in my career and really every creative person's experience when they're doing something regularly where product 
is required. And we, we, we got to drop a show on Monday. So let's get to it. Was there, and don't tell me which episode, but <laughs> has there ever been an episode or more than one episode where it's coming up on the day to record and you guys just like, okay, th th this one is just not going to be in our top 10%. But you know what? We got to make a show. So pull up your big boy pants and get excited and let's just really try to sell this one. Have you ever had that experience? What's it, that's a, every other show, right, Forrest? Every week, <laughs> I know we've had we had a couple of disasters that I know. There's like really well, yeah. I think of like well, oh the unaired episodes. No, they they no. aired because <laughs> you know what the no, show that, must that go really on, on, which we believe the show must go on. Yeah. Well, Scott, tell me if you feel this way. I think the opposite usually happens where every topic that we we cover. I'm just saying there's always that, that panic moment. There's always the panic. Oh, no, moment. Even there, if there's always, it might not uh, be the day before, it might be three days before, but the panic moment's always in the mix. Well, you're always worried about it. And, you know, just the way, it, and I think one of the reasons that we've been able to keep going is really our personalities and, and how we jive. As Scott said, we're different versions of the same persons in certain ways. You know, we both procrastinate. We come at it in slightly different ways, but we get it done and usually not until the last minute when we're really under the gun, but every topic we've chosen has either come from the listeners or it's something we knew about and want to talk about. And I wouldn't say we we choose any of those based on like, well, you know, everyone's clamoring for this. Let's do it. We have to be excited a little bit. But when we first start, sometimes you're worried about it. It's like, God, I don't know if there's enough on this. I don't know if this is really going to like mesh together. And then by the time that you get it done, you get into a groove I think it's Emily Dickinson. I always pull out this quote, but uh, I, I kind of view it as she says uh, when she was asked, does she like writing, being an author? And she said, I hate writing, but I love having written. So it's like the process is hard. It's taxing. It's It takes up all of your time. But we love looking back, or at least I do, on, on subjects that we've covered and saying, I know that pretty well now. Like I, I got familiar with that. And it's interesting. And I think we we always try and find interesting things. That's another aspect of it. We get into a topic we thought maybe sounded interesting. It's like, geez, maybe there's nothing here that's mysterious at all. I, I felt like, I think the first time was maybe Lake Baikal. And it's like, it's fascinating. I think we we both saw that mentioned in uh, What on Earth? I think that the satellite uh, yeah. mystery show. Yeah. And Scott, you know, said like, what about Lake Baikal? It's like this ancient, you know, like vastly deep lake. It's like, well, that's cool. Is there anything mysterious about it? And you see, you know, we, you watch the episodes like, oh, these weird rings and maybe it's gas and, <laughs> and maybe it's stuff bubbling up and, and they form on the ice. It's like, well, that's cool. Is that, is that enough? Is that enough for an whole episode? And We're better I, at and betting I was a little now. panic. Okay, but have you guys ever had to slam the brakes at a certain point and go, oh my God, we're a day away and this is just not it. We've got to, okay. I've, I wanted to do that as a joke with Scott, like that day before, like, I can't do this, man. Like, we got to, we got to like turn the, <laughs> well, we, we got to get another topic down, going. Forrest, what was the one we sat down for? You always remind me, you're like, you weren't prepared at all. And I even told you I wasn't. And then you kind of carried that one. And I just faked it through. Oh, there's so many. The man. listeners should have to guess which one that is. You won't be able to tell. Hopefully. This is another thing I want to say, because I, I remember seeing an iTunes thing where they were criticizing one of us. Like, you know, you, Blake, you should just give up because you've lost your heart, man. Like, you're just, you're just phoning it in. And it's like, there's one thing you have to keep in mind. And I think Scott and I... Uh, I try to remember you know this. What? I should. I'm sorry. I never. Should. Yeah. What well, you? Well, <laughs> sign your name next time, so at least I know who it's coming from. I just wanted to see if I got a reaction. If the iTunes name was the Moth Guy. <laughs> yeah, the Moth Guy. 
wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, Have that guy on again. <laughs> <laughs> he was cool. He had passion, man. He's, I'm not, yeah. You know, I like your show, but that guy, he's really good. Yeah. yeah. You both lost it. But that was the that was the gist of it. It's just like, you know, you guys have been doing this so long. You're you're just resting on your, your sock money, your Bomba sock money. It's like, no, there's nothing that you have to keep in mind. And I, I try to remember this as well, because we will be so deep in research and, and outlining and looking at articles and watching shows right before we're going to do. And, you know, yes, there's a lot of goofing off that goes on in between that. Just that's just our nature. Thank goodness, because if Scott was more of a taskmaster, I would have been fired six months in. Uh, I disagree. Uh, after he really noticed us like, man, you you didn't do anything this weekend. Like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I watched a show. I didn't take notes, but I watched it. <laughs> we both operate the same way, but we both do our, our darndest to get it done. There's one thing that's an important aspect. I think a lot of, again, it, it, because we had asked this about people wanting to start their own podcast is that we get so involved in, in research and all the other business that leads up to that, plus trying to take care of regular show business uh, during the day and all, all the time in between those, is that it's also a performance. So we've fallen into this trap. There's nothing we, we can do much about it, but like we'll research all day and it's just like we, we get together, it's a recording day. And like, we're still going, it's like, man, the outline's not done. So it's like, okay, Scott, you handle this section on the skeptic response. I'm going to, I'm going to look at this about the police reports or this and that. And, and we try and divide and conquer. And then it's like, okay, now it's like eight, 9 PM. It's like, well, we got to have dinner. And then this is when we were together a lot too. Okay. Now it's 10 30 PM and we're just Starting. getting started. Yeah. And that's oh, right. And, awesome. and we have and to do exhausted. that though. But yeah, but we have to do it because our editor is waiting for it and she's got a schedule and she needs to get it cut and then it has to be posted. And one of the things that happens with advertisers and sponsors is they buy a spot for a certain week. We have until midnight Pacific time of that week that they bought to get it run or they get their money back or we have to run it again, which has never happened. But yeah, that's, that's a hard deadline. We can't just be like, you know oh, what, let's post this one later. We can't. So we got to stay up yeah. all night and get this done. And we need to get it to Sarah, our editor. God bless her. She's a superhero. You know, to my point earlier, it's just like if you decide you're going to take out advertisers and try and make a living off of this or at least some side money and you have sponsors, you've got to stick to that schedule. And I know people, they don't understand that because if you've never been in a business where you, you rely on sponsors and, and marketing schedules, you can't just run it because look, the Valentine's flower company special, they don't want that running in May. Yeah. That's got to <laughs> yeah. run in February. Okay. For Valentine's day. Get it. So it's got to run at a, a certain time. And then I, you know, we've had lots of comments. It's like, you guys like four commercials, five commercials. That's too much. Just do one commercial. It's like, hey, you know what? I don't tell you to stop working three days out of the week. Yeah, just take one too fifth much. of the income that you're right. already splitting yeah. between you. You know what? We don't get to go fishing <laughs> enough. Why don't you just work two days out of the week? That's <laughs> plenty. Like, no, you can't do that. Okay, yeah. so. I love the commercials. I, I, often my favorite well, we, part of <laughs> We try to make them entertaining as much as we can and, and informative. And, and we really do uh, believe what we're saying. Yes. The point, though, is that when you hear us, sometimes we're really tired. And I got to tell you, when we get on the mic, it's just like, thank goodness Sarah is editing this because I, we can't speak. I'm stumbling like I, I start over and over and over again. It's just not happening. And part of that is that it is a performance. And sometimes you get on the mic and everything's flowing. And sometimes that happens even when you're tired. I remember the I think it was part three of the Bet Sphere. It was a massive rainstorm. Scott was still here in L.A. Yeah. And uh, it was like. Seriously, like we were trying to wrap this up. It was like 1.30 in the morning or two. 
Oh, you know what? We didn't get done till like three thirty. Yeah. I think I left at like a quarter to four. Yeah. But man, we were so exhausted and delirious, and we had such good material, and we're excited about it. We were in the groove. The talk was, uh, and the info was just flowing out of us. Other times, it's like, yeah, now it's like you know, ten p.m., eight p.m., nine p.m., and we're just getting started, and it's like we're already exhausted. So you have to keep that in mind. Is it like what uh, actors talk about? It's like, you know, you're, you're so keyed up after a performance. It takes hours to come down. You've got to go, you know, party with your groupies. <laughs> I Not will exactly. say this. I am more inclined to have a, a drink or two too many right after a show's been put in the can. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, if we had time and it's like we, we'd have a, a bottle of bourbon or something, we'd have a, a drink after we got done. But you have to realize like, well, it's also we have a lot more work to do the next morning. So you can't blow it out. I remember Lenny Bruce talking about, you know, why jazz musicians and, and performers and comedians like himself, you get done at two, three in the morning and nothing's open. So he would go watch all these old horror movies with uh, Bella Lugosi. And, and that's where he got a lot of his material. And like in jazz musicians would stay up drinking and except in and, New York uh, do, doing the smack. Yeah. Things were open exactly. there. Right. Which is not didn't necessarily make it better. I'll say that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, where there's a, a celebratory feeling. You got another one in the can. You still got a lot of work to do after that, as far as like, uh, you know, the website and, and uh, he's got a lot of post work to do. We QC every show. That's another thing is that again, what drives us is our professional backgrounds and media. It's like, you don't release something that's got a bunch of errors in it. Now, uh, is it we, true that you guys plan to bank a bunch of shows so that the podcast will continue long after you're both dead? We tried to do that in the beginning and we should have. It's like work for five years straight. Yeah. Not airing any of them and then just take the next five years. Yeah. Off. Right now, if we <laughs> die, you get a week and a half of episodes. Oh, that's it. Oh, I see. <laughs> recording. Right. We are weirdly a little bit ahead right now for the first time in over a year, I think. Good. Not oh, from planning, just happened. This is Kevin Olaf Striewski from Flensburg in Germany. And when I'm not looking for the truth, I listen to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, let me ask you this, and I, it's a question I've got. I think a lot of listeners have this question too, because there have been comments that I know that you know the three of us have talked about, and you've addressed it a little bit on the show, but some people have said the podcast has moved from critical examinations of the topics you cover to something closer to outright advocacy. There might be some truth to this, but I always got the feeling that it was more of an like an authentic evolution based on your evolving personal philosophies. Is that closer to what's happening here, or is it happening at all? Do you do you even agree with this uh, observation? Yes, I've seen some of these comments about my skepticism waning, and I can say because I was thinking about this today and how I wanted to answer this question, Rich, because you came up with it, and also. We had a couple of listeners who submitted questions for us on Facebook and Patreon ask a very similar type of question. And just in terms of me, I can't speak for Forrest, but I know that I was more skeptical in the beginning, but I was never like the diehard debunker. I just, I thought that maybe a higher percentage of the stories were made up or phony. And that in, in researching it, you would discover that. Yeah, I would discover that. I would discover the weaknesses in that. It would be like a, an investigator 
uh, for some court show on TV. And I would just be, aha, there's no way this could happen. He was talking about a full moon. It was cloudy and rainy that night. By the way, we always look at the weather with the UFO accounts and stuff like that. Right. Or ghost stories, because you do, you, you want to take all that into account. But what has shocked me is like how many witnesses we've talked to or read about a research that I have found completely credible in terms of not only their character, but in terms of believing what their experience was. So it shifted my balance. And yeah, I, sh- I think there's still hoaxers out there. I guess what I've come to realize since we started the show is that hoaxing is a pain in the butt. It, like, it takes a lot of work <laughs> and a lot of dedication. And it's one thing if you're a trust fund baby and you've got all this time to go out and prank people and build fake big feet and march around in the <laughs> woods and, and then pretend for 20 years that you didn't do it. That's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work to pull it off. Yeah. And, and not only that, but I, I think a lot of hoaxers, the point is to eventually reveal the hoax. Therefore, that's right. the moment you Look get the credit for it. Yeah. Like, ha, ha, ha. Okay, for the last, you know, X number of months or years, everyone thought this was real. Guess what? It was me and my buddy. Right. And here's how we did it. And then the uh, conversely, you get people that come out and say that they did something that you know they couldn't have done. So are they just trying to do that for attention? And then the other phenomenon that I thought is really interesting about the sh- stuff that we've covered is these topics where I honestly believe believe that something happened to the initial experiencer, the person that experiences thing. But then after that, for whatever reason, and I think it could be different reasons, they wanted to continue to get the attention or they wanted to continue to convince people that the first thing happened. And then they started kind of lying and fibbing about what happened after that. And I think that's definitely a phenomenon that I never would have had perspective on until we started the show. So like in terms of whether or not skepticism is dead in me, I'm a different person. Yes, I am. Is the Sally house part of that? Yes. Is Skinwalker part of that? The ranch? Yes. But the other thing for me in terms of a programmer and as force as I say, we're trying to entertain people and tell these stories is I've gotten bored with that style of skepticism in terms of our show. It's just like, I find the show a lot more fun to do and more personally stimulating. If I let go of aggressively investigating or trying to find that gotcha moment of how this thing isn't right. real. That's a philosophical approach. I mean, there are people who are like, we're discussing this in an effort to explain to you why it isn't real, which is what we already know to be true. So yes. we are going to take cases and we're going to use those cases to illustrate why there is no such thing as whatever the phenomenon happens to be. Right. That's way far to one end. And then way on the other end is just a complete deep dive into anything and everything. I still think you guys are pretty much down the middle. You are able to go, well, okay, that doesn't sound right to me, but okay, let's continue talking about the subject and find out more about it. Our job is not to disprove it or to get you to believe it. It's to be in that middle road somewhere. Right, which I don't think is a crime. I think the best thing to do is to have all the information, and Forrest and I will both tell you the thing that we like to do is for you as a listener, and the person also hopefully being entertained by the show, is to have the, enough information to make your own decision. And you know, we are at the point where we'll tell you what we think at the end of the show. We'll tell you, hey, you know what, this is what I think, X, Y, and Z. But at that point too, we're also careful to say, this is what I think. We're not telling you what to think. And we're not saying that you're stupid if you don't agree with us. And we're not letting you tell us we're stupid because we believe it went this way. We're just trying to tell a story. And the funny thing about this is like, we'll both, I think, still call out when something has holes in it. I think I do that more than Forrest does. But when I do it, I feel like he agrees with me if I'm making a good case. But he he has a different way of thinking, which I love. That's where there's a perspective that he has that I cannot wrap my head around. I'll never be 
like him in terms of that, where there's like a fact will come out and you'll say, yeah, but look at the other side of this. It just happened when we did this Lady Wonder show. And there was, <laughs> he right, was, yeah. he was making a point and I was like, what? I didn't even think of it that way. The, it's not a 180 on it. It's like a 189. And I'm like, wait, what, where are we at here? So that's the thing there. <laughs> And, and here's the fun, the other funny thing, and I'm going to turn it over to Forrest here on this, but like there's an irony here because Forrest, I think, thinks that he hasn't really experienced anything significantly paranormal. And it, he's like, oh, it's never going to happen to me or whatever. But like I'm talking about a guy who was with us in the Sally house when we got the DR60 recording. He has captured this insane dancing stick figure in a haunted house on our SLS Connect cam. And he saw a strange but nondescript man walking in front of him at Waverly on a lockdown last year. And so he's like, oh, well, nothing's happened to me. I'm like, dude, it's all over you. It's all over you. (laughs) It's funny because to me, he's more skeptical of his own experiences than I am of the ones that I've been through. And he's been through more than I have. If I was in a room with that camera and we could talk about that later or whatever, that SLS Connect cam, which like it uses the Connect cam from the Xbox and and an Android device to look for a figure. Like, I don't even know. We, we got to get into that. I want to do a whole tech series. But like this mm-hmm. thing, he's pointing it in an empty room and it shows a stick figure sitting in a chair and crossing its legs. It's like, dude, I'm out of here. I have a theory about Forrest's perspective. Yeah. And my theory is that Forrest is waiting for something big. Big. And indisputable. And just a bolt from the blue, an abduction, a near-death experience, (laughs) you know, he's not going to settle for, well, I think I saw somebody, but I, you know, uh, he's like, no, I want a story that is going to be an earth shaker. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Here, here's the deal. Shall I showcase my new phrase now? Everything is everything. So that's uh, not only is it connected yeah, I actually stole a bunch that of coffee Get those uh, coffee mugs ready. <laughs> yeah. And not only did I steal the first one, it, this one's also stolen from one of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos, uh, where uh, Tony Soprano's in the hospital and they're, they're, uh, he's discussing this with an engineer and, and uh, metaphysical. But anyway, I stole it. Yeah. So I'm not, uh, it's all encompassing, even what we're experiencing now in the world. It's yes, it's no. It's just like with the coronavirus, like, uh, is it dangerous? Yes, but not really, but it is. But you could die, but you couldn't. It says, no one, it's just everything. Everything is everything. So my point about all these experiences, and when you ask me, am I waiting for the big one? Well, we just talked to Stan Gordon. I can't remember if we've mentioned this yet on any broadcast, but I uh, had a really great discussion. We hope to uh, turn into something later on down the line. And, you know, and Stan will tell you like, yeah, I've been researching this for like 50 years. Still never seen a UFO or a Bigfoot. And this is the guy he's devoted his life to getting answers and documenting and getting great data. And I, I think he's done a remarkable job. Uh, really, a Life Achievement Award should go to him for all he's done. Because few people do that, but he's still never ex- experienced anything really big. Now, I don't know about his small experiences, but it's all so very personal and about personal belief. And personal experience and how you deal with that and and everything that we've talked about that's how my perspective has changed is that when we started out you know Scott yes he was a little more uh, initially skeptical and I would say both of us have now more things on the table that we consider than we did before with him it was maybe seemingly things that were very unlikely maybe impossible probably uh misidentification a lot of it and i still believe that's a lot of the case too with strange phenomena is that yeah certainly a lot of people are misidentifying things and they're genuine about it they just were really not sure what they were seeing or that natural sight was augmented somehow by 
outside forces in some way. But, you know, his approach was a little different. Mine was that over the years that we've done this, I'm now more knowledgeable about what seems to happen out there that that shouldn't happen and the way that those mechanics work. And, and not that I have any more answers. It's just that I, I have more cases I've heard about and talk to more people and and uh, research more stories. And just the big idea that I get is that all of this, as life is to every one of us, is all personal, introspective point of view. And so you could talk to people who are very skeptical, you know, at us or downright debunkers, and they, they'll email us and say, like, that's such a crock. How can you guys even talk about that? And the fact that we even consider it to them, now it's out the window because to them, it's like, it's not even a consideration. Like, Bigfoot or, or UFOs or ghosts, it's all baloney. The fact that you guys won't outright be skeptical and debunk it, to me, says that you guys, like you said, have, have gone into full-blown advocacy. Because to them, just talking about it is ridiculous. And so when we do talk about it, we come at the table more informed. And so for myself, it's like, yeah, for my personal experience, I've had small things, but I've never had that feeling that people describe. A lot of it's ineffable, I know, is that you hear this a lot. I had this dark feeling of impending doom, so oppressive that I was afraid to turn around. You know, a good friend of mine uh, who, who lives in London now, he's uh, in law enforcement. And, uh, you know, no-nonsense guy, pretty tough dude, and he had that feeling in his own apartment. And then he looked up, and there's a, a shadow dude there. But he had that feeling. It's just like he knew before he looked up, like, I don't want to look up. There's something bad there. Right. And so I may, I may have seen the shadow, but I've not felt the feeling. Yeah. And you're referring to something, you know, so many of the people you guys talk to and things you've experienced, they're subjective. And the, the hardcore debunker is looking for objective evidence. They want something solid and material they can bring into a right. lab and a subjective personal story counts for nothing, but it makes up so much of the way people experience these things that at a certain point, you can't dismiss it out of hand. Not everyone right, right. is lying or crazy. Again, it goes back to being personal, whether you accept what you see as evidence or not. People say like, well, there's no evidence. It's like, well, what do you consider evidence? You know, again, that's the old thing I've been saying before is the ghost in the jar. It's like, well, you're not going to get that, but you will get evidence. And very, it could be a very small thing. And I was just, just thinking about the Delphus ring. There's some trace evidence there, whether it's real or not, or natural or caused by a UFO, you have something left behind that you can look at and examine. In the very smallest sense, that made me think of a, a guy I know who was shooting an, an independent film in a haunted house, not known for that, but it was for rent and it's a very old Victorian house. And he was living there while they were shooting it. So everyone had gone home. He's down in the kitchen, got himself a glass of water. He walks up the stairs and he sets the glass of water down on the balustrade the newel post, I guess, uh, the top flat part, and he sets it down. And he gets that feeling of like, someone's looking at me. There's no, everyone's gone home. There's no one here. He turns and he looks down the hall. There's no one there. And he gets that chill, that the hair on the back of your neck stands up. He turns around and the glass of water is now down at the bottom of the stairs. And he's like, fly away. Oh, yeah. He's like, ah. Uh. Did I leave the glass before I climbed the stairs? Got, got, no. This is something I want to cover. But here's the, here's the thing, Scott, is, yeah, it's something, he's like, no, no, no. And you start, that's what I'm saying, you start to doubt yourself, and it happened to me at Waverly. It's like, did I see that guy cross in front of Jim Willis? Like, 
yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, he must have. No one else saw it. It's like it was funny as I thought. You know, his, his wife Steph had seen it, but apparently later she did not recollect that. I swear, people, someone else chimed in and I saw it. It's like, but now you start to doubt yourself. Well, here's a, a small instance where he's starting to question himself. Like, okay, maybe I did leave the glass, but that doesn't make any sense. I would carry it with me. Why did I go all the way up the stairs to bed and leave the glass of water on the bottom newel post? He looks down at the top of the stairs, the flat part. There's a, a water ring. There you go. And it's like, okay, to the skeptic, it's like, no, you just, you're tired. You just forgot you left it at the bottom of the stairs. I'm going to tell you what you experienced because there are no ghosts. It's not possible. So you must have left it on the bottom. Well, like, well, here you go. Here's a water ring. Now, do you accept that as evidence? Yeah. When is it enough for you? That's exactly right. That is exactly right. At what point does it flip your switch? If that happens and, you, and you're 100% convinced a glass has moved 30 feet in one second in an impossible way, I think for some people that's too upsetting. Yeah. But I honestly think most people go, yep, that's impossible. All right, let's go uh, watch an episode of, uh, <laughs> you know, The Office yeah. and uh, go to yeah. bed. Yeah. They refuse to see it. And you just, you like, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Well, like I said, I, I'm always curious as to what point, and, and uh, we just talked about this you know, with our psychic horse episode and with Jim Hunt earlier about psychics. And of course we, we, you know, we keep talking not, about this psychic horse episode. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> you will be rich. That's another one where I thought we talked about this in the opening. It's like Scott pitches is like, yeah, that's a lot of fun. I'm not sure I've heard about this. Well, we just covered a human psychic. Why not a, a psychic animal and especially a, a lovely, cute little horse. I just thought like, okay, we can cover that one. That'll be a good one off. And then we'll move along. It sounds like a lot of fun. And then you get into it. It's like, whoa, there's more to this because she was studied by a, a husband and wife team of parapsychologists. In fact, the Rhines were one of the first to study it and, uh, and make some uh, academic inroads at the University of North Carolina. Not UNC, Duke. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, at Duke University. Yeah. And was the guy who coined the phrase extrasensory perception. We got that going for him. So the point is, it's like there was so much more to this. And we get when you get into it, it's like, wow. I mean, it's still fun. It's still fascinating. But what is going on here? What was this connection? Is this provable? And my point is that you can deny it all you want because that's the safe route. That's what lets you sleep at night. And I understand that. I need to get to sleep. That's why I don't want to see anything in my bedroom. As fun it would be to take a photograph of that and present it on the show, I need to get eight hours. I need to get to sleep. I don't need anything watching me. So this has happened to a couple of people I've known where a total stranger, no one they've ever met, comes up and says something about that's so deeply personal in their past. You know, that pinned the needle for them. It's like, how could you know this? It's like, well, I see things or I just got this impression I thought you should know. Or somebody tells you about something without you asking about a, a missing item that you've been looking for. And you go to the place that they told you and it's there. How does that happen? You just brush that off. Well, you can choose to. That's your choice. If that upsets you, you don't have to believe that. You don't have to get upset about people telling you that story, but a lot of people do. They don't want to hear that. And I, that's some reaction that I, uh, from the people I'd known uh, who had had a person with psychic abilities tell them that. They were like, get out of my face. I don't want to hear that. And then, you know, the person will try again. It's like, look, I know this is hard to believe. I know this is hard to accept, but something is telling me you need to hear this you know, and at that point it makes an impression and like, they don't have all the answers from that either. You just have now opened your mind just a, a, a tiny bit more than it was. And maybe that's all the message was. 
Question three. <laughs> it's not really. Don't scare people. We're we're way yeah. past three. We're at like five, aren't we? <laughs> but we're covering a lot of the uh, the ideas that are embodied in the set of Rich's questions. Yeah. This is one for both of you guys. Um, where is the bet sphere right now? Mm. Is it at your place, Scott? Wait, can, can you see is it, it on is the it uh, forest week? It's on the webcam. <laughs> it's actually uh, sitting below the microwave. Maybe it's not the best place for uh, it. It's, oh, that's uh, what. The, okay, got it. We All do right. yeah. know cool. where it is. We do know where it is. Well, so you haven't lost it. We haven't lost it. <laughs> it's not in our possession. Yeah. Put it this way. It's known that uh, we don't know who exactly has it. We've heard a line on it that we tend to believe, but we don't exactly know. Where. So don't kidnap us. We can't tell you what it is. And secondly, it doesn't work anymore. It's That's a big so metal It's just a big ball. metal ball. Yeah. Might not be the real one. Yeah, but it's cool. Yeah. One day when we have our our, our great uh, on-camera setups here for maybe YouTube or something, uh, it would be such a fun thing to have sitting in the background that's been turned into a uh, uh, <laughs> a clock or a coaster or something. Yeah. I'm going to ask you another question. What's the most moving story you've ever heard from a listener whose life was really affected or maybe even changed by um, by one of your podcasts? There's only... Because there's a couple of shows that stand out for me for intensity, personal intensity. Um, but in terms of change, the one at the top would be uh, the episode called Sarah and the Spider Woman. Because that's a listener from the UK who contacted us after we did an episode talking about anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which I believe we talked about during the Annalise Michelle episodes about exorcism and that famous case, which inspired the exorcism of Emily Rose, the movie, we had a guest on and he had explained about the possibility of this particular encephalitis creating really wicked, serious hallucinations. And that encephalitis is life-threatening. And Sarah contacted us having heard the show. She was a listener and she heard that episode and she was currently suffering from that. And none of her doctors could figure it out. And her email to us essentially said that that episode saved her life. And uh, so we, we had her on. We did a uh, show about it. If you haven't heard it, it's called Sarah and the Spider Woman. But to right. me, I, that's the thing that shook me most to my core. You know, with Bigfoot and UFOs, I never thought anybody was going to email us and say, your show saved my life. So that still touches a chord with me. And to answer your question, Rich. That's great. And Forrest, do you have a different answer or? It does really lift your spirits and and, uh, and warms your heart and keeps you going. And we get an email saying like, hey, you know, I just want to thank you guys because uh, we were really in a dark place or I was a, a, really in a dark funk. I started listening to your show and I think we just got an email today like that. We did. Uh, saying, um, just listening to a couple of people that that get along with difficult ideas that are interesting and, and far out and woo-woo and wacky. It's just really just lifted my spirits and given me a, a touchstone, something to focus on that was outside of my problems. And to the bigger picture, it's like, that's what we hope to be. You know, we're not trying to, like everyone else, hit on all the same notes that you're constantly being hit over the head all the time. Some of those notes do need to be brought to everyone's attention, but it goes back to the what I just told you about uh, having that group of friends that are your closest, and nobody wants to really talk about these kinds of subjects for whatever reason. And they're still my friends. They're I, I love them, and and uh, I don't fault them for that. I get it. 
but you find that one friend, it's like, here's somebody who I can share my story with. And like I said, we, we read most every email that comes in and, and we're always feeling bad that we can't send a personal response to every one of them. But it's just like, I just needed to tell somebody the story. And, and I know that you guys wouldn't judge me. You know, you don't have to write back or whatever. I just needed to, or if you do, I just need to hear that I'm not crazy, that, that these things do happen that you think happen. And we get a lot of uh, emails spread out, but it'll be somebody who said like, yeah, thanks for just being there and, and putting the show out because it's given me something else to focus on where the troubles of the world, I can leave for a little bit and they're always going to be there. You can get back to them. <laughs> you know, the important things are still out there to be discussed, but you can leave that for a while. So that's one of them. I mean, it comes out of left field a lot of the time. Uh, one that I remember, and I'm not, and again, I feel bad. I, I'm not sure we ever responded. I, I can't remember, but if uh, it actually came through with the Henry Plummer series, which was just a, a personal one for me because it's somebody in my region of, uh, of living that is uh, kind of a, a well-known outlaw sheriff. And we had somebody write to us and say, hey, you know what? I wasn't maybe that interested in Old West stuff anyway, but I listened to how Henry Plummer treated his his wife and the characteristics of that where, yeah, he was maybe not the best guy, but he he always kept back. And that's, you know, Scott had made a point in the story where he rode along the train as she was leaving. She's like, I had enough of this. I got to I got to go. And he he rode along for miles and miles by the side of the train. And she said, I recognized from that, that I was probably in an abusive relationship and made the courageous decision to get out of it. And thank you so much for bringing that up. And, you know, and then when you hear that, it's like, wow, I, we never expected that. <laughs> that was not any aspect of this show, but it's like, if that's where you can find an answer and some solace and peace of mind for yourself, then we're really grateful to be able to provide that. On a personal note, for as far as stories, Rich, I was going to ask you: Do you do you know John from film school? I don't think so. John was the father in the Sludge Entity episode, and he was a good friend at USC. And I hadn't talked to him for many, many years uh, after school. I kept tabs on him through other friends. And out of left field, that's the connection that was made. It's like, hey, I have a story you guys got to hear, and from listening to a few of your episodes, I know that you're not going to judge me or, or call me crazy, but I. Uh, but if you want, my wife and I'll tell the story. So that was one, though, that really opened my mind, not in thinking that these things don't happen, but not knowing a lot of the mechanics of how those things happen and the specific types. And, and here's a case where we had a little bit of pushback just from people, even in our own Facebook group, saying like, OK, yeah, maybe they want to do the right thing and they believe that. But come on, going to psychics and, you know, mediums and healing people remotely with remote viewing techniques, you know, they were duped or whatever. And, and, uh, you know, that wasn't so great. And it's like, Hey, I don't know who you are, pal, but I know John. And if he tells me that's what happened and, and his wife does too, and, and you could hear the emotion in their voices, I'm going to go with their assessment of it over yours. I'm sorry, but that's where somebody that's close to you tells you something and it's mind blowing and that opens your mind. And that's also one episode that a lot of people have come back to and said, Hey, something similar has happened to me. And I don't tell anybody because I, the, the, some relatives don't talk to you anymore. That's so powerful that yeah. that can invoke that kind of a reaction. There's a lot of personal connections you have to some of your guests and I know the way that we sort of connected or reconnected, if you will, 
was based on a bit of an odd coincidence, but I'm just curious, have you guys noticed with other episodes you've done any other weird coincidences or synchronicities that the show seems to have triggered or sort of been the uh, the, the central point of? I think a, a Twitter follower alerted us to this term a while back, synchromysticism, which I, I, I'd heard before, but didn't never, never really checked out. And it is those strange coincidences between something that I think that mostly comes across in media that, that you experience, and then you maybe have an, uh, a synchronistic experience later on. But we'll hear about something after we've discussed it as a possible topic and some other left field thing comes up. It's like totally unconnected, but it's in relation very specifically to a topic we're going to cover or some element of it. Oh, wait, that just happened. That happened when we were talking about a possible topic. And then like a day later, you said, oh, and here you go. A listener just sent me a link. In the body of this outline, one of the questions that we won't get to because we're only on question two is uh, a question about that very topic that just came in. Have you guys considered yeah. doing this? I saw that. I yeah. saw that. Yeah. 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 That that happens all the time. I think between uh, Rich, Scott, Rob, Christofferson, and myself, we were on a, a Twitter thread link here. And uh, what's funny is that Rob deftly covers the UFO field. And uh, he was saying, yeah, I was just thinking about doing a series or a few episodes on tiny UFOs and tiny aliens. And that that came up with our Kira object series about little tiny, mysterious zipping objects around. And and then the uh, Indonesian cases where tiny aliens were observed on several different accounts. Oh, yeah. But as I was telling you, I was watching the Twilight Zone series. And uh, I think in season one is like 36 episodes. And one of them is who played in Dora? Agnes Moorhead. Agnes Moorhead. Yeah. So in one, in one earlier episode... Scott and I, we, you know, it's like instantly. Yeah. I do have a degree in radio, television, and film. She was originally <laughs> a radio star, you know. It's a really... Uh, I wanted Rich to see. It's kind of a blockbuster performance. There's no dialogue in the whole episode. It's just Agnes Moorhead being visited by this tiny UFO and tiny little aliens and how she deals with it as a seemingly pioneer woman all by herself in the shack out in the middle of nowhere and just how that would freak you out. And then there's this discussion of, well, we discussed tiny aliens and, and boom, I turn on the episode for that night. There it is. Like people are rolling their eyes. It's not such a huge thing, but it's like, we were just discussing this. And so those things pop up all the time. But what I will say is that you have to be observant. You have to start paying attention and opening your eyes and observing and noticing because that's something that, uh, you know, Scott and I will talk about uh, Laurie Williams teaching the control remote viewing class. And that's one of the first things she told us. I, Cause I asked her, it's like, well, when you, you know, after you take uh, several of these uh, levels of courses, do you have more paranormal experiences? Do things open up? Do you see weird stuff? And she goes, yeah, because you, you're now paying attention. You've opened up that channel. You're not just shutting it out. Like I didn't see that doing the old Sergeant Schultz. It's like nothing to see. Yeah. And you, you ignore it. Sometimes it's just that thing where your eyes are open to a particular aspect of your experience and you do notice more. It's like, oh, the, the, I'm, now I'm hearing that song everywhere, whatever. Yeah. But sometimes it feels like the universe is kind of shoving things in front of you now. It's like, oh, you've noticed? Okay, cool. Notice it, some more. Like 15 minutes ago, Forrest said he was going to let me talk. <laughs> I just wanted to remind I didn't think I was going to say much at all today. I was kind of in a, in a funk. A I know. I, I was a little worried. I just want this to be a two-parter so badly. <laughs> well, there's two things I want to say about the sludge entity that hands down and nobody asked this question, but I will say it was hands down the absolute most intense interview I ever did for our show in the history up until now. And when the mother of that boy 
broke down. I broke down. Of course, I held it together on the microphone. But if you could see me, I was very upset. And I was upset on her behalf. It's just really intense. But um, the other thing I wanted to mention, just with regard to what you guys are saying, and I don't think this actually plays into the actual coincidental thing, but we've talked about this a billion times. I mean, when Craig Kakowski was on, when we did the Kakowski Intruder, again, uh, friends of ours, that uh, where the brother and the sister had both seen the same weird thing in their house years apart and didn't realize it until they were out drinking one night way like 15 years later. I love that story. But one of the things that Craig talked about was having an uncanny ability to figure out the song that was about to play on his iPod or knowing who's calling on the phone. And it wasn't just a passing thing. It was kind of always there or it was not hard to access for him, which I thought was really interesting. But the other thing too is I recently reconnected with an old friend that I used to work with in advertising in New York. His name's Chuck Kensinger. And he reminded me of a wonderful, wonderful scene in Repo Man, which was a movie I just grew up watching over and over and over and over with Miller, who's one of my favorite character actors, uh, Tracy Walters of all time. And Miller in Repo Man he makes this little speech to Otto, who's the main character played by Emilio Estevez. And the speech says, uh, and I can't do it like Miller, but it's a lot of people don't realize what's going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example, show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp. Out of the blue, no explanation. No point looking for one either. It's all part of the cosmic unconsciousness. And then, of course, what Otto Estevez says to him, did you do a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? <laughs> By the Which way, he Repo doesn't Man, answer. I, yeah, he, yeah does, I love that he, he doesn't answer. He just, he just keeps going. You've <laughs> got to great. watch I, Repo I, Man if you haven't seen it. It's, a, it's an excellent film. That but, was yeah. well done, Scott. Well, yeah. I mean, it's true. It is the lattice of coincidence. And Chuck, coincidentally, brought this up to me and Forrest by email yesterday. You know, and it came up here. But to be fair, it's something you kind of talk about all the time when you have a show like ours. You, you know, that's a common thing. I think since we've been doing the show. There's been a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. More so than the rest of my life. Yeah, that's, that's something I was thinking about a minute ago, Rich. Just And, and of course, now I can't think of it examples. But a lot of times the thing that I see happening is there's a connection between a topic we pick and what's going on in the world. And it's really strange. That's happened over and over, and we haven't done a good job of documenting it. We'll pick something, and then that very thing will wind up in the news the week the show comes out, even though we've been working on it for three weeks, and it didn't have any idea there was going to be breaking news about it. That's happened a bunch of times to us. Was Amelia Earhart one of those? Yes, yes, absolutely. There was another Mm. one. I can't remember what it was. There was other things that we talked about, and then just, it's like the day after the show or the day before the show, there was a big announcement. And it's not always that. Sometimes it's something else or it's a message that's out in the general consciousness that seems to really play into the episode we did. And it almost seems like we planned it, but we didn't because we're, our process is like, yes, we do have the story folder. We haven't talked about it much lately, but we have this folder that's got like a thousand potential shows in it. I'm sure only 300 of them are viable, but they're all in there. And we can always fall back on that. But nine times out of 10, we get a little bit ahead or we have a minute we're liking to think about the next show and force and I'll just chat for like 30 minutes, maybe with a beer and like, oh my God, did you hear about this psychic horse in Richmond? And bam, that falls into the lineup or whatever, because we both got our hooks in it and it's fun and we're excited about it because we have to mix it up to, you know, we like our list, some listeners don't want to hear about the UFO or they don't want to hear about the cryptid. So we like to keep it mixing up. Hello, everyone. 
I'm Golden, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Shall we go to some listener questions and see yeah. what's on their minds? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We have a question from uh, Gabriella F. And she asks, what advice would you give to a novice cursory researcher on finding sources that aren't complete malarkey? So this sounds like, how do you know when you're like, do you guys have like a secret place you go where you get rock solid, absolutely 100% malarkey proof information (laughs) for the show? There's a couple of things. One is to always drill down and every time there's a citation, find that source and drill down on it and then read about who created the source, vet the author, vet the book, vet the article, vet the academic person that wrote the JSTOR document. Always try to figure out where that stuff is coming from. That's the main thing I would say. On a very top superficial cursory level, this is simple as simple as going to a Wikipedia page and then reading the thing you're looking at and then going down to the bottom and following all the links and reading everything on those links and then finding out who the people are that created those links and checking them out. Where did they go to school? What kind of person are they? How are they respected in their field? And you take all that stuff together and once you put it in a bucket, you have a pretty good feeling for the veracity of what you're looking at. Do you ever like then Google the topic and then put the word hoax at the end just to see if there's someone out there who, you know what I mean? Like you try to dredge that up and see, well, is there someone out there who says this is all bullshit? Well, yeah, because the last thing you want is after the show runs is to be like, um, I can't believe you guys did this seven part series on the Patterson Gimlin film and you never interviewed so-and-so who had a Bigfoot costume in his trunk and you can see a picture of it in his living room. It's like, you, yeah. we got to look for that stuff. And we always try to. And so far, we haven't been busted with a big thing like that that we've missed, Forrest, I don't think anyway, which no, is pretty I mean, good I think, for 200 uh, episodes. I, I, do, <laughs> I worry about it every time, though. Well, I mean, look, even if news came out, and Rich, that's a good point, because as far as the Patterson-Gimlin film is at, uh, to the listener's question, you will at some point have to gather as much evidence, both sides, or as um, Neil deGrasse Tyson says in his masterclass uh, <laughs> trailer promo, what better avenue of confirmation bias is there than a Google search? Because it's it's going to pop up what you wanted to look for. And then yeah. there you go. There's an, somebody wrote an article, mystery solved. I knew it. And then you stop there because you feel satisfied. It's whatever you wanted to, to hear. Yeah, Somebody to, in to court the point, you. Harry Nielsen, you hear what you want to hear and you see <laughs> what you want to see. <laughs> Always. There's bias with everything. So what I say is that at some point, you're going to have to pick a line. And we always say this uh, fact as well, is that even the people at the top of academic fields don't always agree with each other. There's bias in every conclusion and every point of view. That's us as humans. So you'll have to gather all the information you can from every source you can, and then make a decision on your own as to what makes sense. And that might change. That might change over time uh, to a question you didn't ask. Uh, has anything uh, you know that we revisited changed as more or less skeptical? One that just happened for me was with, again, going back to our, our talk with Stan Gordon. Just briefly, I want to say about Stan Gordon, because we mentioned him earlier. That's relating to an in-depth interview that we have relating to revisiting our uh, previously taken down Kecksburg episode. That is now going to be a two-parter revisited that you either will have heard right before this show or it'll be right after this one. So it's right around the corner, no matter where yeah. this one falls in line. So, And he is a preeminent- You're just going to keep pushing mine down the line. No. Because uh, no. <laughs> maybe, oh, what about the psychic chicken you were going to do? <laughs> five-part- 
if you prove to be more interesting than that, then maybe. <laughs> yeah, Rich, you know? come on. Not a chance. <laughs> well, the point is, it's like, uh, that was one where I was, I was pretty much uh, on the fence. It's like, I've heard the side where it said, uh, that's probably just a, uh, a GE Mark II re-entry vehicle. And that was somewhat maneuverable and it crashed and they looked similar. It's like, yeah, I don't know. That makes a lot of sense to me. Some people said, uh, look, it was more than that. I saw this thing under a tarp. It was not that. And then uh, when we revisited the subject, I finally happened to watch, and I think I missed it the first time, but I, when we covered it, is I happened to watch Stan Gordon's documentary that he produced and put together back from 1998, 96 or 98, I think is, is uh, and it is available on Amazon Prime. The documentary was not only his reportage and, and data, but it was like 30 interviews with people. Eyewitnesses. Who'd seen it. A lot of whom have since passed. Yeah. Yeah. And again, people write this off. It's like, well, there you go. Everything that people see is baloney. Eyewitness testimony cannot be, uh, it's fallible. Uh, you can't trust it. It's like, okay, yeah, that happens a lot of the time. But when I start to see patterns, and this is what I'm talking about for somebody who's starting off in research, when you start to notice the patterns of how something is laying out and attuned to your sensibility and, and sense of reason and all that, I changed my mind a little bit, leaning more towards there's not just one person that said there were Egyptian hieroglyphs ringing the bottom of this thing. There were several people who saw it, who said like, I don't know if it was hieroglyphs to me, it looked like backwards writing. I don't know if they were hieroglyphs, but it was not English. And that's the other, the knock on uh, it being just a, a U.S. Uh, Air Force uh, space vehicle is that, well, look, it had the word Air Force on it with a star. That's what they saw. And after hearing so many people saying like, no, that's not what I saw. Wow. Uh, okay. My needle has been moved more towards something of unknown origin is all I'll say. Another thing that I want to say which maybe is a reverse instance of you type in hoax and you missed it. I looked up the Nazi bell. Now we covered that in a two-part series. That was uh, one of my more interesting topics for me anyway. But in looking at that, I remember there was a really good wiki page on it. The wiki entry for the, the Nazi bell. Back when we covered Die Glocke. Yeah, back when we covered Die Glocke. Wikipedia never gets all woo-woo anyway, all right? They're just like, the best they can do, it's like with the Patterson-Gimlin film, it's, it's pretty well balanced, I think, and they present the skeptic side and people who testify against it. You shouldn't stop there. And so with the Nazi bell and Die Glocke, it's like, oh yeah, that was a pretty good page. Like they talked about red mercury and all these kind of crazy ideas. And that's what the fun part was allowing that stuff to be on the table and discussing it. And I go to the webpage, boom, scrubbed. The title is now the Nazi bell, parentheses, hoax. I was blown away. I was actually yeah, this the first was the time other I've, day. I, yeah. Because we looked it up when, when we did the Kecksburg thing. I was actually shocked. It's like, I want to talk about this, but we got to talk to Stan Gordon. I just, I, and, and I did it while Scott was asking him a, a question. Of course, I always usually blank out when he does, uh, <laughs> and, and looked at other stuff on, on, on the web. And it's just like, Oh, let me look that up. It's like, well, he's talking here. Cause I got a question. And I was just like, I was flabbergasted and I don't know who did it or who, who, cause it's an open edit source, crowdsource kind of thing. It had now all been relegated to Igor Vitkowski. Yeah. He didn't know what he was talking about. He's full of baloney. It, that's, I mean, I'm summarizing here, but if you look through it, and again, there's a discussion page along with a lot of entries, and you go to that, it's like, okay, there you go. And Nick Cook, who wrote the book, Zero Point Gravity, Zero Point unverified. Energy. Zero Point Energy. I'm sorry, yeah. I mean, was Zero this based on energy. new information, or was this just, oh, no. we've decided to relegate this to, let's just call it out, and just let's just say it's bullshit, just in case. 
the latter. I don't know who decided this, but it's all gone. All the interesting stuff that was in there. Look, I, I skimmed through it and I was a little disgusted just because it's like, how dare you rob me of my fun? <laughs> These are things I like to talk about and read about. And I don't have to walk away believing this stuff. Nobody else does either. But the fact that you've just now told me and, and for everyone else, like, don't look here anymore. This is baloney. And and basically, the yeah. And, and again, it's like, then you start wondering, is this a conspiracy? Does somebody on a higher level not want us to look at the Die Glocke? Well, we got a warning when we did that series, by the way. One of the few warnings we got about the Russian government monitoring the show after we did the series and our interactions with Igor. Really? Yeah. You look at that and it's just the dismissiveness of it. That tone of hubris is what irked me in that I start to look at this and it's just like, well, there you go. Witkowski, they and Cook, they didn't really have good sources. Now it's literally been labeled a hoax rather than, well, here's something interesting in history. And, and there really was a Spangenberg and uh, an Otto Spangenberg and these other Nazi um, officers who ended up apparently on reports that can be seen and there's copies of, they existed, but there's no connection to them now. So don't worry about it. So that's a case where it was reverse. Yeah. Reverse hoax, uh, hoax claiming, I guess. That kind of leads into the next question. This one is from Steve H., he wants to know if there's any mysteries that you guys hope to see definitively solved within your lifetime. And conversely, are there others that you kind of hope just remain mysteries? Solved, <laughs> I'd like to see Amelia Earhart, Dyatlov Pass, The Summerton Man, Kelly Hopkinsville, The Flannan Niles, Skinwalker <laughs> Ranch, The Patterson-Gimlin Film, Mary Celeste, The Betts Fear, Electronic Fog, and Spring Hill Jack. Ones that I think <laughs> should remain unsolved, The Jersey Devil, The Mothman, Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. The Coral Castle, The Pied Piper, Atlantis, Black-Eyed Kids, and The Voynich Manuscript. I, I, well, I'm thinking, I'm right. thinking oh, I'm he sorry. thought about this yes. previously. Oh, okay. Speaking for Forrest also, apparently not. Uh, yeah, I'm always speaking for Forrest. Going back to, I will <laughs> let the listeners know uh, in on a little secret here, as uh, one of your earlier questions, like one or two before this, you know, was the show concept any different when we started off? I think Scott had an idea, along with our good friend Travis, that it should be a goofy back and forth with a guy who is the straight man, and that would be Scott, and the whacked out UFO believing nutcase, which was going to be played by me. I don't remember that. Okay. That Travis so had that idea. Go. I don't think that was my idea. <laughs> you thought it was, uh, it had some legs. Well, but... you know, for maybe a half hour. We went through a lot of stuff. <laughs> no, we did. We did. So that was one iteration where it's like, well, that might be fun if we take an angle, because you're wondering, it's like, okay, do we do it point counterpoint? where we take a, you know, not either one of us is playing a, a rigid role, but we we take the side of like, okay, you're going to be the believer on this one. I'm going to be the skeptic. And uh, the more permanent roles, I, th I think uh, the Not Alone podcast, those guys uh, do a good job of that. Then I started to realize, like, because our, our friend Travis, like he comes from a theatrical background and, and he's a really funny guy, great writer. And basically I remember him telling me, it's like, well, man, you should just go for it. Just be that guy, be the wacky guy, you know, who, who believes everything. And, and that should be your character, man, on the show. He's from Texas and uh, I'm not doing a great job, but, <laughs> no, but we all do impressions like, of each other. Our little circle. I know we all Travis do. Travis yes, is all in our that friends. circle of friends that we were talking about hanging out with years and years ago. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. So. And, and he was one of the few that uh, would entertain that. But, uh, you know, and Scott was around him a lot more than I was. But uh, back was then, the but, idea that you would be that guy and then Scott would be the skeptic. Yeah, Scott's the serious uh, straight man in this. And, and I'm the, the crazy whacked out guy who is just conspiracy fueled. And, and here is my point. It's like, yeah, that sounds like fun, except that we also decided that we were going to be ourselves. And that's a big decision when you uh, 
uh, there's a few podcasts where the because of the nature of it is usually true crime where they don't reveal who their identities are because you have nutcases out there that believe that you are speaking to them through their dreams. So to avoid all that, Good we decided Lord. like, well, we're going to be ourselves because I, I think where this ends up, it's it's too hard to keep that up unless you're doing some kind of a, a nonfiction podcast, certainly. So if we're going to do that, then the approach is that maybe this is a journey that we we take and we kind of reveal as we go along as being objective as we can how we think about things and our personal beliefs on stuff as we evolve. And that's kind of what it turned out to be uh, eventually. But my point at the time when I started thinking about this, like, well, that sounds like fun, but, but let me put it this way. Even if you were joking and uh, you made some light of a subject, I didn't say this to our friend, but it's like, okay, imagine you just started a new job and they're checking you out on social media. And I post something on Twitter tagging you saying like, our friend here believes that reptilians have replaced all of our world leaders and most of our celebrities. And he really believes that. No kidding. How do you think that they're going to view you now? You think you're going to have that job much longer? You think that they're going to look at you sideways at the water cooler? Once you you're latch onto eggs. something. <laughs> oh yeah, now they're going to get rid of you uh, since they're, they're part of the Illuminati. So the, the point is, is that this is serious stuff in a way. What we believe, because I, I keep going back to this, belief is everything. Point of view and experience and, and, and personal experience is everything. So once you latch onto that, like that's who you are. So I don't need people believing crazy things about me that I don't really believe. I have to be in control of my persona, my, which is just who we are. And that's the easiest thing to be in a, in a sense. It's also one of the hardest because you, you do have to take a stand at some point about what you believe in the subjects that we cover. Jennifer P. has a question. Are there any early show topics that you guys might want to revisit or that you view differently now after years of doing the show and your personal experiences? I would revisit Skinwalker Ranch mostly because I think our methodology and a research approach is more refined now. And I would want to take a wider look at it than we did. Not that I regret what we did in the past. I just wish that it was one that we had covered after we had a little more experience. And I would say the same thing about Oak Island. I mean, that was really early and there's been a TV show about it on for like <laughs> 10 years now. So we could, we could probably still be talking about Oak Island, but in going back to those two, I would do that too. I would be interested in both of them because, um, you know, Skinwalker has come into the zeitgeist now. There's a TV show about it and that sort of thing. But I would, if I was to go back and look at it, I would want to do it in a very serious way, not in a pulp culture. A Skinwalker? You mean? Yeah. And then I, you know, I think the other thing I'm interested in doing, but I don't know if we'll ever get it done, especially because they're so expensive, is trying to find another DR60 digital recorder like the one we have that performs in the same way and having it dissected by an electrical engineer to determine if there is any plausible way. And I'm not trying to disprove what happened. I think I'm right, right. looking for peace of mind in a way. But like, if there's any plausible way that what we recorded at the Sally House might have occurred through a strange confluence of the components that make up the device. And and another thing I've been thinking about uh, for a long time, and there was uh, some folks who reached out to us. And I can't remember now where it was, a Twitter or something from another show. I need, I'm, if I can track that down, I'll, I'll get their name into the show here. But about having it recreated, not only taken apart, but then all the parts 
identified so that you could build a new version of the DR60 and not charge $1,600 for a busted one on <laughs> eBay. Weren't you talking to that one guy, though, who was going to submit it to even further testing? Yeah. Ed Primo. Yeah. Ed Primo. Yeah, he's a top forensic uh, analyst and expert witness here in the United States. He's the one that analyzed our recording and then also, by sheer coincidence, talk about synchromysticism or whatever you want to say. That same week, another one came in from a gentleman in Florida that had a weird recording on it. They both went to him at the same time. We did not know each other. We both found him right. different ways. But Ed, what he was said he was going to do was he said he was going to send it to a team of electrical engineers at the University of Colorado in uh, Denver. But then after like the continued bench testing and an, an attempt to recreate what was on the recording, he just abruptly pulled the plug on his investigation into it, returned it to us, and also returned the lab fees from the second investigation. Did he say anything? He just said, we can't get there from here, essentially. I have records of all of it. And he seemed to- Because be, that seems a little weird. It was weird. I mean, it seemed like he was backing away from it. I chucked it up less to- paranormal stuff than more him being concerned about his professional appearance and career, like getting further down the road with it and maybe the exposure from our show or something, because he is an expert witness. He's testified. Uh, he's always on right. CNN. He's, they called him to clean up a recording that was, I think, a cockpit recording when JFK's body was flown back. And so like he's doing that kind of stuff all the time. He may have genuinely been a little skittish about it after he couldn't figure out what it was. I know that he thought he was going to be able to just recreate the sounds that were on the recording in the lab. And when he couldn't, I think that shocked him. So there was that part of it, but there may have also been like, um, he didn't want to get branded paranormal forensic guy. It also costs tens of thousands of dollars. You could put a couple hundred thousand dollars into doing all this stuff. So that's another major consideration is that, okay, so you send it to a, a, you know, a team, uh, of uh, university level electrical engineers, who's going to pay for all that when it's just your crazy hunch? That's don't you guys have a secret billionaire patron who finances all of this and keeps? You think you guys we'd be here part? talking yeah. to you if that was the case? Do you really think we'd be doing this? Yeah, he yeah. needs to send us an email because we haven't heard from him yet. <laughs> so uh, Cam has a question, and he wants to know about how the show is produced. Sort of a nuts and bolts. From from research, when does ARC come in, the Astonishing Research Corps? How do you divide the work? And how closely then do you stick to your script or your outline if indeed you even have one? <laughs> yeah, so Cam, to answer your question, it's evolved over the years and it actually is a little bit fluid in terms of responsibility. And that's one of the reasons I think the show works so well. I'm more the producer-minded person between me and Forrest, I think. And as a result of that, I've tried to like build systems and processes. At some point along the way, we evolved from using note cards. Oak Island <laughs> was done. Was it? I no. kid you not, with index cards on a bulletin board that did look exactly like that meme that everyone uses with the red strings and everything. That's how we did uh. Oak Island. It was hard to follow. <laughs> but like, like an insane person's. Uh, yeah, you know, and things were out of order. Yeah. yeah, it was the crazy. The murder of their wife from 25 years yeah. ago. I'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. The orgy of evidence. Yeah. Oh, God. By the yeah. way, have you ever seen that show, Cold Justice? That's such a great show. You got to watch that show. Mm. Um, I have not seen it yet. It's a cold case thing with this investigator from Texas. Her name's Kelly, and she goes in with a team, and it's Is really, this real? really entertaining. It's, it's real. Yeah. You guys should okay. It's a reality show. You can stream yeah. it. Yeah. There's a lot of them. So at some point along the way, we evolved into getting onto Google Docs for outlines and research, and then 
I don't even think those were outlines initially. They were like notes. And then the notes became outlines. And then the outlines got better and better and better, but are still horrible. <laughs> but for a while, because when we started out, Forrest was still working full time, as he mentioned earlier in the show. Oh, I don't know. What was that? Seven or eight hours ago. But like I was doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the research and the writing. And then he would come over and I would try to bring him up to speed. And that's after he worked like an eight or nine hour day and he's driving an hour and a half from Long Beach to get to my house to stay up all night talking about Oak Island. I mean, it was insane. He has the most amazing work ethic of anyone I've oh, ever met in my you. life besides my wife. They both work harder than I do and I'm nearly dead, so I don't know how they do it. But <laughs> he's a better writer than I am, but he was too busy. So I would be doing the outlines and the research and I was also writing our commercials at the time. And then we would sit down and record and get it done. But then um, over time, as he started to drift away from the freelance work and become full-time for the show, at some point he just said, well, I'll do the outline this week. And I was like Tom Sawyer with the fence. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then he just kept, he's been doing them pretty much ever since. Although he'll say to me, you know, like he said earlier tonight, let's divide and conquer. Because, well, that usually happens because we're getting really down to the wire and we're not quite ready. And so we need to like split up and really tackle some stuff. And because I've done them in the past, I'm ready to do that. And because he does them, he's ready to do that. So if we get in a bind where he's out of town or he's under the weather, he's got to deal with something or I do, we've both done everything. So that's one thing about our system that works really well. We're both capable of doing stuff. I do enjoy cramming the books when there's a book to be read. I like doing that, especially if I'm going to be interviewing the author. And I enjoy doing the interviews, which Forrest usually lets me do, or he'll be on with me. But I've, I've really taken a liking to that. So that stuff is all divided up. But generally now what happens is we agree on the topic. And a lot of times Forrest will say, you know what, I'll take this one. Because we have a lot more administrative stuff going on now that I deal with pretty much 100% of the time, whether it's uh, making sure we've got the right commercial scripts or this stuff is going out or planning the next episode or our schedule or who's going on vacation this week in terms of our support staff, which is only three people. But still, they're very, very important. So we have to think about all those kinds of things. So that's pretty much how it works. But we're both very flexible in terms of pinch hitting for each other. Forrest? Yeah. The, well, part of the question is, when does the art come into play? Will... What yes. we'll usually do once we know it, it could be in a, this is happening this weekend. Tess, get right on it, and she'll she'll be uh, Johnny on the spot and put that to the arc and and generate you know a uh, outline of uh, questions or or general fields that we we have, which is usually uh, you know credible sources, academic sources, fun sources, depending on what it is, images, photos, whatever, and that'll get the arc going. You know, I, I feel bad. Sometimes we we just really dump it in their lap because we haven't decided yet. It's like, wow, this would be good. This is the time to do it. But we need to start on this like tomorrow. Uh, so she's really good about doing that. Or if it's a, a topic ahead of time, she'll get that organized. And we use an app called a collaborative app called River to do that. And so what that does for us is that that gets us going in a direction. And sometimes, like, like I said, we'll be in a jam where we haven't had time to consult them. And we'll look at... Uh, like a lot of times we'll just like, okay, is there a good wiki page on that? Are there, what do you Google that comes up? Are there any good articles out there from, uh, you know, again, my favorite sources are probably the scientific and academic ones, National Geographic and uh, Smithsonian and all those. You, you take a look at those first and then you, you branch out from there. And what River does though is, is that points us in a few directions and then we have some uh, really talented people who do have academic uh, connections and they'll find stuff in JSTOR or um, things that are in university libraries that uh, it would be harder for us to find and get. So they provide those. And we like to... Uh, we also have our secret weapon in the ARC who works at the yes. Library of Congress. So that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, she's fantastic. They they all contribute. A lot of them have different uh, fields of expertise, and they they'll know, you know, if it's archaeology or uh, the other sciences, or they will uh, they'll they'll find stuff, and so they they'll dig up stuff. Which, uh, you know, again, we can't use all of it in every episode. There or they'd all be nine hour long series, but we try to get the basic story with some interesting things here and there on the on the side. So then we put that into an outline. And uh, Cam's other question was, uh, how closely do we stick to it? Well, that depends too. If one of us is busy doing other life things or things with a show, we'll have written out sections of it, or if especially if it's complicated. And, you know, because you'll get on the mic and, and we've done this too, when you try to, uh, you have good notes, but you try to riff on something and we're just stumbling all over each other and, and ourselves. And it's just like, man, this is not making any sense. So it's better to have those things written out and, and it flows much more smoothly, but we leave ourselves. This is why I've put a temporary ban on the Renaissance era. <laughs> Anything <laughs> and, and any, uh, yes, any Eastern European names. He's <laughs> developed an aversion to, but we leave ourselves room to improvise and fill in with other things that we've come across. So it's not that rigid, but there are, yes, you'll notice there are big sections that we just kind of read based on, you know, what I call para reading where we, we write it out, but we kind of uh, riff. Uh, gently on that and then uh, follow that or just read some, yeah, paraphrase it or just read sections. You know, having been on the show, and I think this was especially apparent during the uh, Christmas near-death experience episode, there was a lot of, we would take a minute, talk about what chunk we were going to discuss next, who was going to say what and how. We kind of do almost like a little run through and then it's like, okay, we got it. Okay. And now hit the Hit yes. the record button. Yeah. What's probably we what do we that as we're going. Time. Yeah. We should have done that this time. <laughs> because you're a guest. Three. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we went over that a lot more. But well, of course, Scott and I were, we do that, you know, we know each other pretty well by now. And we do that on the fly with you, Rich, because you were, you were much more involved than a usual guest, you know, that is an expert on the subject. <laughs> That's not a knock on you. You're very well read on that. But, but we knew we went beforehand. It's like, okay, Rich can speak on this and he's put a note in the outline. Uh, he'll talk about this. This is another aspect that we'll ask him about, but here's a little tidbit that we've researched and, and written out as notes or an out, you know, a, a sub outline. And uh, there are certain parts that I know you guys want to make sure you get every last detail, every date, every name. It's like, no, this part needs to be, this can't be riffed and it'll be read. And then there's other parts where it just easily flows into discussion. Yeah, right. exactly. We're trying to get to a point where the outlines are conform more to what we like to do. Right. Even after five years and a hundred and whatever we're at now, 80 episodes, that's still not quite right, but it's getting close to like, okay, this is what we need to do for this one. One of the difficult things about meandering from topic to topic is that topics have different levels of academic intensity to them. So sometimes you have one like Lady Wonder, it's like, okay, it's a psychic course in Richmond. We're basically looking at 25 newspaper articles and uh, everyone's postmortem on it all. As opposed to Loftus Hall in Ireland, where there was uh, 300 years of people living there who all had the exact same name. That is just like, oh my, how do we, but it's such an amazing story. A guy like had cloven feet and flew through the ceiling and there was a hole in the building. It's, I mean, you got to cover it, but there is a little bit of a thing where it's just like, all right, I'm going off to the study. Come get me in a month. Uh, You know, because that's the thing, you have to learn everything to say a little bit about it. So you have to like, you have to go to the 500 level so that you can teach the 101. Well, we're not teaching anything, but you, but I, what I find is that um, when we cover a story, we'll find a through line 
and or just make one up. Yeah. <laughs> well, to me, it's all about the connections. No, we do, we that, do uh, for the three line. That's true. And you feel good when you've kind of discovered one that maybe isn't mentioned a whole lot. But it's like with Lake Baikal, it's like, yeah, this is all really interesting. And maybe we can, this is all natural, weird, but natural earth phenomena. Then you come across a bit where it's just like, oh, there were silver clad swimmers with bubble helmets that could zip around under the water and they ejected a bunch of Russian divers. Now we got something. Oh, and the Chinese were possibly there and they have their own giants that they came across. And th then you find an, a line there like, there you go. And then you start going now and it's like, well, no, it's not just <laughs> gas bubble circles in the ice. People see weird flying objects there all the time. And the place has a natural uh, in indigenous population sacredness to it. And that's interesting. So you try to find this through line that maybe connects everything, because I think that's that also really adds to the narrative. And that's what, you know, people will say with our coverage on Skinwalkers, man, I could not follow this. It's all over the place. It's like, well, that's how it happened. Yeah, that there's no, <laughs> it's, it's, they're all a bunch of it. random, uh, yeah, things yeah. that it's like, they're all connected in that there is a weird driving phenomena that we were just becoming uh, uh, familiar with. And that maybe there is some singular thing that's behind this, but it's a bunch of weird things that happened. And they're not all Mothman. He's not the anti-hero of the story where he's going through like, I misunderstood, flap, flap. And he's, it's like, I didn't mean to cause that fire or or the, this bridge collapse or whatever happened or scare those teenagers on Makeout Lane. There's no singular line, but there's a lot of ethereal connectedness to it. And that maybe something is driving all these things that aren't, aren't readily connected or relevant, but maybe there are. So Adam Eaton has a question. Other than the Sally House, what topic have you guys covered that really changed your opinion the most from the beginning to the end? You came in one way, you came out a different way. Uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film for me. Scott's <laughs> yeah, got a bunch of those, yeah. Yeah. All That's right. the main yeah. one, though. It is one that, uh, one of the ones that were controversial and that we received the most flack for. And I get it. It went on for a very long time. But it is, again, you're on this journey with us. You can jump off at any point and uh, come back to it when you see fit or interested. But it's one where, you know, we grew up hearing this story. We watched those uh, SunWest uh, International pictures, you know, as, as kids, as a documentary, you could go to the theater and see. And they're kind of fun. And, and we saw the clips over and over again. And it was part of 70s culture. But you didn't really visit it until we dove into it, because I guess it's like, well, that's fun. Yeah, I, I wish there were Bigfoots. That's kind of cool as, you know, as a kid. And and uh, and why not? It's just, you know, there's all kinds of strange creatures out there. And then once you really take it apart, it's a journey of discovery. And and yeah, that's why it went on for six parts. But Forrest, I mean, are, are you saying that for the Patterson-Gimlin film, your opinion changed? Like you went it in was... thinking, this looks like a hoax. and you came out differently because I mean, obviously Scott, it's been a bit more, you know, on yeah. the radar, right. His reaction to Skinwalker to Sally house, but for you specifically, was that one or was there a different one where you came in one way and came out another? That's a good question. I, I think overall though, the reason I, I bring up the Patterson Gimlin film is that like a lot of subjects that we're covering. And I guess that's my overall journey, my needle being where it is like with Patterson Gimlin, you thought you had an opinion on it. And I guess what I'm saying is growing up, it's just like, well, yeah, I believe there could be Bigfoots. I'm not really sure that what we see on film there is one, you know, because I've heard a lot of people, they said it's a guy in a costume and, you know, I'm a 12 year old kid. I don't, I don't know. It's like, 
maybe I'll go with that. And then you leave it there. It's just sitting out there and all this other experience and belief kind of form around that. And then when you take a close look at that, it's not like I totally flip-flopped on it. I would say I was more unknowing about it all throughout my life. It's like, I don't know. It could be a hoax, could be real. I, I, I don't know because I had not looked at it. Right. I get depth. that. You went, you went in thinking, you know what? I could be convinced either way. Right. And, and, and a lot of people won't believe yeah, it. Yeah, I went in that way too. That's what I'm saying. That's why it was kind of a journey. It's just like, man, once you look at this, and this is what I love about it. We, you were talking earlier about hoaxes and hoaxers. You know, and again, everything, it's like when you look at uh, higher academic degrees and it's a PhD. Well, that oh, first part there. You actually got them or they just yeah. irritated the college to the point where they said, <laughs> okay, you haven't completed yeah, the <laughs> curriculum, but just stop bugging us and please leave. That's where you're wrong, Rich. I did nothing. And, and that's what bothered them. Like, are you going to do something with this? Just take the test. It's like, we're not even going to offer the test because you're not coming back. It's like, there you go. My inaction accomplished for me a personal milestone. But my point with the Patterson-Gimlin is that the P in PhD stands for philosophy. Everything that we do comes down to a philosophy. And you look at it philosophically and you look at it logically. It's like, well, this is the philosophy that I love about hoaxers, about Roger Patterson hoaxing this whole thing and why it's such a great metaphor uh, for a lot of paranormal studies that he could have been in the middle, Jose chunging this fake documentary that he told everybody he was going to do at some day. Like, yeah, I got to I gotta get a suit and a guy and we're going to... And Bob's going to dress up as an Indian tracker and we're going to get out there and we're going to fake a Bigfoot film because I'm going to make a million dollars. It'll be a lot of fun. And he could be doing it right then. And then Patty walks through the frame. Now, here's the point about this. I always try to make that people, uh, you know, if they give us some flack about it, it's like, look, all that could be true. He could have done a thousand hoaxes, a thousand fake films. But look at what's on the film. And when you do, and you examine that in more detail, the best that uh, I think serious academics who are, who are objective can say like, well, it's possibly it could have been done by a human, but maybe it seems unlikely that it was. And then you look at all the other aspects of it. It's like, man, I can't believe that's one where I just, I can't believe it was a dude walking in a suit that had fur glued onto a football helmet, like he said. That's the best you got? No. And I'm sorry about the, you know, the, the, uh, the Philip Morris costume, but let's see the costume. And that's what you come up with 20 years later. Like that looks nothing like which look at what's on the film. And that's the argument that everybody will make on it. Look at what's there. And if that does not make sense to you, then you have to question it. And that's where I ended up on it. And so other topics, when you talk about that, where I, I totally did a flip, it's like, I think in that general sense, it's not that. I went, went in one way, believing that it was true or not true and had totally had my mind changed. I think I've had my mind expanded on the topic, Right. that I know more about it. And so my opinion, I hope, is more informed. The other thing that sets this question off a little bit is that we almost never go into something with a hard and fast opinion. We go into it wanting to figure it out. And we don't have time. Yeah, we don't have time to have those. Yeah, but I mean, I was I was more open minded to Patterson Gimlin being a hoax. And when it was over for me, I no longer felt like it was a hoax. So that's the biggest change you're ever going to get from me, because generally, if I am so convinced that something's absurd, I don't want to cover it usually. Right. Unless it just has so much gravitas and, and has gotten a lot of attention in, in the in the world at large. So it deserves to be dissected just on the miracle of its success as a hoax or whatever. But if we're taking the topic on, it's because I'm not really sure. But at the end of it, I don't always come out more sure. But sometimes right. I do. Yeah. And one of the things I love the most is if I can surprise Scott. 
and I think one of the first times we did that was uh, it's got to be shadow people. And that was one where, again, I do not disbelieve the phenomena. I wasn't as aware of it as I wasn't until we got done and we heard all these people writing in and they still do. And, and so that one, I specifically remember we were discussing like, what's a good scary Halloween topic. And I said, uh, Oh, I've, I've heard about, have you heard about shadow people and the hat man and, uh, and you know, all these related things like, you know, the old hag. And he's like, I think that's just something that happens when you wake up. And my thought was like, that's not wrong, but let's look into that. Maybe there is something there. And that's one where we got into it. And you look at like, okay, what does science have to say? Like, oh, it's just uh, your air conditioning's broken. And you wonder, like, that's it? That's what you got to say? That somehow you're, there's a low voltage uh, stimulus to your uh, parietal junction? That's what's happening? No. And then you get all these afterwards is when it keeps opening your mind because then you get all these letters from people saying like, yeah, that happened to me. And this is what it looked like. And this is what I felt. And I don't think I'm crazy or it keeps happening to me. That's one where, yeah, you, you uh, we introduced a topic and it opened our minds. Speaking of that, uh, Jamie A. from Wisconsin has a question. Uh, for topics you've covered in only one or two episodes, which ones do you, Scott and Forrest respectively, wish the show could have taken a deeper dive on? Ones that you now look back on and say, oh, we could have done four, five, six parts on that. Well, I think Kexburg is one of those that we have a broader approach to it now. And it's also the show that we took down a while back because of um, some things our guest said after he came on the show in the public forum. And everybody's like, where is it? What do I want it. You know, people are forced tells me there's bootlegs of it circulating on the Internet. Wait, you guys took it down because somebody on the show said things that you later found out. Our guest had like made a racist rant uh, that blew up into a whole big thing. You can find it. I mean, if you Google. On, not on your show, but on separate social media. Uh, right. on the Yeah. It had nothing to do with our show, but it was just a few weeks after it or a month or two after it or whatever. So, I mean, you can find it pretty easy if you Google it. But so we took it down because we, we just didn't like. <laughs> well, I'd love to spend some time Googling searching for a racist rant. Well, it's a, it's a racist rant connected they're, to Facebook hard to and find. MUFON. Yeah. So it was a whole thing. Oh, I know, now I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So, the MUFON guy. Yeah, the I MUFON guy. Yeah, this was a big story. So we were like, well, uh, it doesn't, this, we're not going to keep this up. But the story still interests us. So that's when we got Stan Gordon, who is a, a legend on that topic and all things that have happened in Pennsylvania regarding UFOs. But what I was going to say about it being potential for other additional parts is you will find that out when you hear the series. And I have just officially decided that we will put Kexburg right after this one, Rich. We don't want to bump you down because we do run into the danger of putting you behind the psychic chicken if we go any further. <laughs> so this show will come before the Kexburg two-parter in a couple of weeks. So, But what about the levitating elf? The levitating <laughs> elf. You guys had like a four-parter just yeah, well, totally I think I think you're thinking of Jeff, ready to go. Jeff the mongoose. Yeah, Jeff, you're talking of oh, Jeff yeah, the, uh, talking the talking mongoose, mongoose. right? Yes. Yeah, no, I understand. Hey guys, this is like a little filler clip episode. Use it whenever you want. That's yeah. fine. I understand. Okay. I'm I'm just trying to help you out. All right, you'll be um, on many you? many more times. Yes, Forrest, yeah. have you ever wanted to circle back and go? Oh my God, we barely scratched the surface. Well, I, I think there are some topics and you'll see other people who've done a pretty good job of taking one subject and turning it into a season or a whole podcast. Well, I mean, I guess in, in, in one sense, uh, our good friend Chris Williamson has done that with Amelia Earhart. Man, he is the podcast of record on, on her disappearance. He's talked to so many experts. 
he's drilled down on it. He's done such a thorough job at that and, and getting the conference together in Atchison, Kansas in 2018, which baked Scott's noodle for a, a synchronistic reason where it's just like, hey, you want to go check out a haunted house while you're here? It's like, there's more to this town? It's like, yes, there is. And so uh, with a subject like that, it's pretty in-depth. I can't really think of anything, though, that... Uh, and here's the dilemma. We could have pared that down, yes. You know, from a two-parter to a one-parter. But there are so many fun things that we think are interesting that people need to know about this, that we have the luxury of turning it into a two-parter, sometimes a three. It's very rare that we'll go to four or five or six parts because we we do understand and feel ourselves the fatigue that happens with the listeners if you're not into that because guess but what nowadays, we're feeling it too you know yeah but i i found that nowadays you guys do that typically when you know a the topic is pretty far reaching but b when you've got interviews that directly yeah, yeah. supplement it's like okay you know part three is 100 a 90 minute interview with one of the people involved and right right right, right. that's true I, th I think yeah yeah you know when you're talking about production of the show uh that's another thing that we have to consider it's like you like i said we might decide on a topic a week or two in advance and it's like hey there's somebody who's connected like i wonder if we should reach out to them i wonder if we can get them for an interview and we don't know it comes in at the last moment it's like well now we have to consider like that's going to be in 90 minutes maybe <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of Fear and Smoking in Blanket Fortiana. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Sari Nichols. E-A-T. Golden. Present. Very large feet. Now, back to the show. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>